Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. One, two, three, Wendy Wilson, hope you had a great day. Ah, magical engineer Frank and I got a great show. And thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. We, here on Herb Talk, we like to empower you, so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to be talking about um, slimming down, because, you know, this time of year, that's what people want to hear about. Uh, that's what they see everywhere, is how do we lose all the weight we picked up at the holidays, which, you know, you probably picked up quite a bit. Most people do. So we're going to talk about an easy way to do that. Um, also, we're going to be talking, since we're going to be talking about slimming down, we're going to be talking about um, hitting that topic on the whey protein shakes, which seem to be popular the first time we went over it. So we're going to hit that a little bit. And if we get uh, time left over, we may jump into some more of that uh, modifying the food pyramid again. We have stuff we didn't cover last time. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fighter, righteous men and women in uniform. I'm lifting all of America prayer. Hit the knees, seek the Lord's face. Hope you will too. And I did bring my devotional today. And today's devotional is from Romans 12 and Jeremiah 29. And it goes like this Come to me with a teachable spirit, eager to be changed. A close walk with me is a life of continual newness. Do not cling to old ways as you step into this new year. Instead, seek my face with an open mind, knowing that your journey with me involves being transformed. By the renewing of your mind. And as you focus your thoughts on me, be aware that I am fully attentive to you. I see you with a steady eye because my attention span is infinite. I know and understand you completely. My thoughts embrace you in every lasting moment with love. I also know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So give yourself fully to the adventure of increasing attentiveness to my presence. Amen, says the Lord. And, of course, if you haven't, seek, you haven't been seeking the Lord's face, please mind the time because it grows short because that is the way. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thank you, Frank. Okay, first up in the quacker today, FDA is suggesting new limits 
on uh, lead that they put in lipstick. Yep, yep. According to FDA, uh, they've issued this new draft of guidance recommendations. They want to lower the lead limit in a lot of popular cosmetic products, and not just your lipstick, but your eyeshadows, blush, body foundations, shampoos, all that stuff. Um, It's not a binding thing with the FDA. It's a recommendation. And um, they want to make sure that the products in the sundry items makeup area uh, have lead levels that aren't going beyond the 10 parts per million, uh, you know, which, you know, if it goes over that, they said could be a threat to public health. So lead is uh, known to be a neurotoxin, and it can accumulate in the body over time. So the FDA guidance was actually prompted, we, we hear, by the Citizens Petition, who submitted it in 2011, Uh, It's an association that represents personal care products in the industry, and they were pushing the FDA to take a closer look at the cosmetic products and to make sure they're they're not breaching any safety levels of uh, or safety levels with the with the heavy metals. Now, research conducted by the FDA shows that more than 99% of all the cosmetics um, applied externally, all of them currently on the market seem to have lead in them so uh, agency the agency does maintain that those levels are below the threat level so there you go keep an eye on that moving along the crack report um here's a company uh, that's using a a computer vision program to help the visually impaired Uh, this is a technological innovation for the blind it's a wearable assistant and it's made by a company called Horus, H-O-R-U-S, Incorporated. And it consists of a headset and some cameras and a pocket processor with a battery. So it use, utilizes the same technology that the cars on auto drive are using, drones use to navigate and so forth. And I just think it was interesting that this company's name, Horus, well, it was the ancient Egyptian god's name, a man with a falcon's head with a right eye that was described as the sun of the morning star. Hmm. All right, so um, Horus is a wearable device and it, uh, that observes uh, and understands, describes an environment to the uh, impaired, the visually impaired, and it gives them information um, in a discreet way. And uh, it can, the, the computer program can read text, can recognize faces and objects and a lot more. So Horace is able to describe what the cameras are seeing, such as a postcard, a photograph, or a landscape, and it provides a short description of what is in front of it. So tech recognition, face recognition, object recognition, mobility assistance, and this is all uh, because of uh, University of uh, Geneva, the research team there in Italy, helped create this computer interface system Uh, It's also going to be used for robots to help them navigate. All right, last but not least in the quack report, um, speaking of technology, uh, high-tech washing machines and refrigerators are going to be pretty much the norm here. And it's interesting that these are going to be like smart devices. Uh, They're going to be hooked up to smart meters. They're going to communicate with each other. And this makes detectives very happy. I'm talking about police detectives. The devices are connected together in the world of smart meter working, and they provide a lot of information and also can give the police clues. Uh, detectives are currently being trained to look at these gadgets called white goods, which could provide digital footprints 
for victims or criminals in crimes. So wireless cameras within these devices, like your refrigerator, may record a movement of the owner or a suspect. Doorbells even that connect directly to apps on your user phones um, can also uh, remotely, uh, if the homeowner wants to let someone in and they're not at home, they can uh, offer access to the premises that way. So all these devices leave a log and a trace of activity, and so this can actually blueprint a crime scene. And the the new Samsung Family uh, Hub Free Fridge, by the way, has cameras, and they say it's it's a really handy thing because um, homeowners that are out at the store and they can't remember if they need to buy more milk, they can go to their Samsung some fridge and ask it, uh, show me the inside of the fridge. Do I need to get milk? And it'll show you a picture of the contents inside your refrigerator. So they think that's going to be uh, just the way of the future. And, of course, detectives of the future um, going to have digital forensic toolkits uh, and, and analyze microchips and download them right there on the scene uh, without having to take anything back to the lab for testing. Who knew, right? Your, your appliances are going to tell on you. I guess, you know, don't come down in the middle of the night not wearing anything. Open the fridge. It's going to take a picture of you. And that wraps the crack report. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, Frank has a good point. He says you can't have lead in paint, but you can have it in your lipstick that you use every day. Yeah, you guys out there are going to be kissing girls with lead lips. How about that? Um, I know, it's sad. Um, well, you know, the alternative is to get something without the lead in it. So um, personally, you can get now lip balm, which is, you know, beeswax or um, some sort of Vaseline product. Some of them are Vaseline products. But, you know, like Burt's Bees has um, the chapsticks with the color in it, and it's almost like lipstick. And there's no uh, of those toxic chemicals and leads and stuff in there. All right, we're going to be talking about slimming down in 2017 because, you know, every new year we, we kind of get bombarded with the weight loss plans. You know, according to worldometer.com, the FDA and the FDA, uh, they say Americans are spending like $30 billion on diet aids every year. So the weight loss industry nets. $60 billion, and that includes food plans, you know, gym memberships, exercise equipment, and also those in-home workout videos. So this industry is expanding now to its newest clientele base, which is overweight and obese children. So medical doctors, nutritional dietitians, and drugs tend to be also part of this ever-growing segment of business. And we can't forget that a significant number of those that are overweight are also diabetic. Now, according to the National Institute of Health, in the United States, more men are overweight by 74% compared to women by 64%. Now, I would have thought it had been the other way. I, 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 I would have thought that. But uh, in this, uh, they even have an obese category, and uh, it seems to be a tie between men and women. 35% of the men, uh, 35% of the women tend to fall into the obese category. Now, we're going to take a look at some of these weight loss techniques uh, that will uh, give us, you know, maybe a successful edge this year and not have to do it again next year. Well, let's look at the weight risks 
because uh, being overweight, you know, brings a lot of health risk with it, like heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke risk, sleep apnea, liver disease, osteoporosis, and certain types of cancer. So uh, you know that the United States as a nation has a problem with weight when there's an extreme obesity category. Yeah, there's one labeled that, extreme obesity. And women are edging out the men in that category by 8%, and men are at 4% there. So when we look at ethnic groups in every grouping, the men are more overweight than the women by an average of 73% versus 40%. Now, according to the National Institutes of Health, medical practitioners are required to report on patients' weight and body mass index to insurance companies, and the statistics are showing that weight problems begin as early as age 2 up to age 19. So again, the males in the youth category are heavier by 32% compared to the females by 17%. Now, in less than 50 years between 1962 and 2010, Weight gain in the United States showed that moderately overweight individuals kind of remained the same at about 30%. And the obesity area climbed from 35% to 48%. And the extreme obesity area climbed from 49% to 75%. So when we compare the overweight statistics on Americans in the 1950s, we find a mere 10% of the population had a weight issue, you know? So childhood obesity really didn't start up until 1963, but it really started to climb in the 1980s, okay? All right, so let's look at some of the contributing factors. Uh, Experts have their opinions on why Americans are weighing more these days, and they've listed some contributing factors just a few of them are, you know, they, they say the restaurant uh, portions of your entrees are four times larger than what you were served in the 1950s. They also say dinner plates became larger since the 1900s by about 23%. So in the 1900s, the dinner plate was 9 inches. Now it's 12 inches. It's a big platter, you know. Um, also, there was, there's been an increase in sugar consumption, and also the modern conveniences have led to more sedentary uh, lifestyles, you know, sedentary entertainment and so forth. Stress and boredom have contributed because we eat more, and also a lack of sleep contributes to a weight issue, as well as convenience foods and lots of foods with empty calories. And a low nutrition in food is also contributing because the body is not as satisfied and we tend to eat more. All right, well, let's look at, um, uh, well, it's really a struggle for a lot of people. And so according to the National Weight Control Registry, people who lose weight will gain it back within about two years. And people who keep the weight off for five years or more, they have a better chance of keeping it off due to they've actually made a lifestyle change. It's not just a diet. So one major difference at keeping that weight off was, you know, adding that regular exercise uh, to the healthier diet. So it became a way of life doing that. And uh, let's look at some of the greens that give us the edge in our weight loss, um, you know, trek here. According to 2014 research that's out of Lund University in Sweden, 
spinach helps to decrease hunger while increasing your weight loss. So according to their research, spinach contains thiolacoids, and they offer 43% greater success rate at weight loss. So apparently the thiolacoids in spinach reduce our food cravings for sweets, fast food, and carbohydrates. And they report that spinach also supports healthy hormone activity for better appetite control and eating habits. So the research team suggests that, you know, you should have a drink with spinach in it before, you know, at breakfast. And that reduces your food cravings during the day and it tends to satisfy your hunger. So their study reported with regards to their test groups that those who had spinach lost an average of 11 pounds and they had no food cravings compared to the five pounds uh, the uh, placebo group lost. So a little difference there. Uh, according to uh, one of the professors on the study, Charlotte Alberson, a professor of medicine and psychological chemistry at Lund University, she said, the key is to feel satisfied, which will reduce or eliminate the food cravings. This makes it easier to stick to that balanced three meals per day without snacks, end of quote. And I tend to agree with her right there. So Professor Addis Aberson, um, she says that the processed convenience foods will break down quickly in the digestive tract and it releases hormones in the digestive tract that send signals to the brain to compel us to eat more food. So the whole foods, like spinach, take longer to digest, and they offer more of a time-release energy source. And their study was published in the 2014 Journal of Appetite. Well, you know, it gets more interesting. Uh, we want to be successful at our weight loss, and we have really to keep in mind, we need to keep in mind that, you know, the body requires healthy fat. And if you want to lose weight, you got to have healthy fat. And uh, we're, we're going to be more successful in our weight control when we have whole foods and also foods with healthy fats in them. So the University of California School of Medicine, they released research from their January 2016 study in which they mention weight loss programs that are using omega-3 fatty acids are very successful. They mentioned, of course, the Mediterranean diet, which, you know, has a bunch of omega-3s. Uh, they also talk about the natural healthy fats in that diet. According to Dr. Cheryl Rock, the healthy fats lower the lipids and the saturated fats, often that are associated with bad cholesterol. And this also reduces the risk of heart disease and cancer, according to Dr. Cheryl Bach of the California School of Medicine. Uh, she says, what we found is a diet high in healthy oils, olive oil, coconut oil, for instance, did lower lipids and bad cholesterol and promotes healthy weight loss, end of quote. All right, so where does the fat go? Does anybody ever ask that question? Uh, I, I know it's, we think it's been answered, uh, but maybe not. Uh, you know, let's say you've made some dietary uh, and exercise changes to your lifestyle and you start to lose some extra weight. Where does that fat go, right? Uh, well, health experts kind of in a disagreement about how the body disposes of all this unwanted fat. Now, we've heard that the body burns it for fuel or for a heat source, you know, energy source. However, in 2014, an Australian study suggested that the fat is disposed of through the pulmonary system and we breathe it out as carbon dioxide. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the, the physicists 
at the Biotechnology Lab at the University of New South Wales. They say our fat dissipates into thin air. Yeah, their research was published in the British Medical Journal, and Professor Andrew Brown states that if we trace the atoms in the fat, we find it's being lost through the oxygen and water conversion to carbon dioxide that we breathe out, and, of course, water through the urine. So for every 10 kilograms, he says, that's about 22 pounds of fat, uh, every 22 pounds of fat that you lose, about 18 pounds, Uh, are exhaled as carbon dioxide. The remaining becomes water excreted through the kidneys into urine. Interesting, huh? According to Professor Andrew Brown at the University of South Wales, Australia, he says, quote, more than 50% of doctors, dietitians, and personal trainers thought fat was converted to energy or heat. This misconception that we have encountered reveals surprising unfamiliarity about basic aspects of how the human body works. End of quote. Ooh, rip him. Rip him a new one there, Dr. Brown. Now, Professor Brown also answered the question, well, if we breathe more uh, carbon dioxide, uh, Professor Brown, do we accelerate accelerate our weight loss, you know? And uh, he said no. No. He said no. Breathing more does not hasten the fat loss process. He said, also weight loss or carbon dioxide human emissions, he says, that does not cause global warming either, he said, end of quote. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, let's look at some whole foods and even some herbs to help us out. Give us the extra edge as we lose our weight and keep it off for more than five years. Uh, So if we have a lot Uh, of weight you know we have more power than we think over our health and how we can conduct our lifestyle so whole food diets with the omega-3 fats a little regular exercise and of course those green plants like your spinach can help speed your weight loss to success now the folks at apothecary herbs have a few herbal products you might want to check into to increase your success rate at weight loss, you want to look for their body foundation food mix. It has spinach in it, of course, but it has it has a lot of other things in it. To, and it's it's super nutrition to fuse infuse into the system a lot of those uh, plant based vitamins, minerals, and amino acids that satisfy your hunger. So you want to also check out their gentian root. It's a liquid, and if you need a little extra help, this prevents overeating. And a lot of Americans do that. Also, the American or Siberian ginseng that they have offer a lot of stamina to help you power through your exercise workouts. Actually, uh, professional athletes and Olympians will use ginseng to uh, do their workouts with, so you can too. So give them a call and order or ask for a free product catalog. Their number is 866-229-3663, 229-3663 or you can if you're outside the US call the international number of 704-885-0277 that's 704-885-0277 of course you can visit their web store it's thepowerherbs.com thepowerherbs.com that's where your healthcare options just became endless you can get rid of the weight without all the drugs and surgery and really smile about your power that is what it's about empowerment Uh, Money-saving coupons are also on their website, or if you don't have the Internet, you can always ask about that. And if you do have email, you can also sign up for their free online newsletters, which are uh, just packed full of natural therapies that you can, you know, get 
each and every week in your email and of course share with family and friends which is always great 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 feedback you can read about what people are saying um, regarding the newsletters they're on the website so you can go to books and newsletters and check it out uh, no subscription fee so they're completely free and the American Survival goes out on Tuesdays and the Health Quest goes out on Fridays and uh, you can just uh, check them out for free if you if you want to opt out of the uh, list you can so um, Absolutely no pressure there, but lots of free information to empower you. That's what that's about, thepowerherbs.com. All right. Um, I hope everybody had a great new year and, and uh, obviously Christmas holiday. Uh, it's been it's been an interesting uh, few days into the new year. Um, we've got snow coming here in North Carolina this weekend, and everybody's probably going to make a beeline for the grocery store. Um, yeah, well, North Carolina doesn't have doesn't have a lot of the uh, equipment that uh, you know cities and states that normally get a lot of snow have so it gets a little tricky here you know uh, to be on the road you got a lot of people inexperienced they don't know what they're doing and of course they don't have the plows and things that they normally have in like New York New Jersey Chicago uh, places that you know get a lot of snow so uh, we're getting some snow this weekend so everybody's gonna you know buckle up in the state of North Carolina, one flurry and the schools close. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. There, it's crazy. They just get all scared about that. Wig it out, and uh, so we're gonna get some snow this weekend. Hopefully, hopefully it won't stick around. You know. Uh, well, I get to see by the clock. I'm gonna take a break, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the way shakes everybody buys, especially bodybuilders, people that wanna bulk up, lose weight. We come back, we'll talk about it. Oh, honey, honey. life into the original medicine herbalist wendy wilson will be right back if you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option you need our emergency heart attack kit five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, Henry Ford, the automobile, and herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk Live.
pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Our prescription for good health, Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. No insurance card required. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. about, you know, the new year, dropping a little weight, getting ready for, you know, the spring wardrobe and, of course, bathing suit season. And um, if you missed the first part of the show, we will have the show up on the archive area shortly, and you can go back and listen. Uh, some great information on things you can tap into to really make your weight loss a success. 
um, and keep it off. Now we're going to touch base because we did talk about um, the way shakes in the past. Um, got a lot of great feedback on that show as well. Um, so I thought we'd kind of revisit that because a lot of people use the whey protein shakes um, to help them power through their, you know, workouts, weight loss programs. So let's just check it out real quick. Um, a lot of bulking up these days with the muscles and people will turn to the whey shake products, especially American males. They're into that because um, American males, you know, n- now they want to avoid the steroids, but they still want to beef themselves up. And so they're turning to the whey protein products. Um, so does the whey protein, the powdered shakes, do, do these products, do they put more muscle on you? That's a, a good question. And according to musclefitness.com, it depends on the product. They say, quote, there are not so good whey protein products on the market, and, and there's better ones take a look at this uh, protein source to see if uh, there's a better choice for uh, or if there's something else that you could use for building up and maintaining muscles. Um, so what's the differences in the whey products? Well, a search on whey products pulls up a ton of information. However, the health experts state that the way that the protein is digested and utilized by the body is the key to the benefit. So it's called microfraction content. And they are com- and and what it is is whey is comprised of amino acids which are required for muscle growth and energy and stamina. So whey also contains protein and antioxidants which assist the immune system and muscle growth and repair. However, whey protein is digested differently than other protein sources. So we're told that the protein in the whey products uh, are metabolized faster in, in less than 30 minutes. And the nutrients, like the amino acids, are sent to your muscles directly. So science is telling us that um, what pushes up the muscle growth and why bodybuilders are using the protein is because of the amino acids. So uh, let's look at the supply of whey products because whey protein is derived from cow's milk. And lately, the quality and health benefit of cow's milk has really been brought into question and more people are switching to alternative milk products. But that uh, may explain why over uh, a four-year period from 2004 to 2008, Dairy Farmers of America euthanized about 500,000 cows in order to drive up their milk prices. So that incident prompted a lawsuit under the Caper-Volstead Act. It's a federal law that prohibits price fixing. And we're told that dairy farmers earn about 33% on the retail price of milk, which is normal for the market when you have a middleman distributor and then there's a retailer getting their cut, of course. But Dairy Farmers of America, you know, are paid about $52 million. Um, they had to pay out a $52 million settlement for that milk price fixing thing. And dairy farmers can go bankrupt when milk prices drop. So since the government w- won't let them raise milk prices, their alternative through supply and demand is to kill the cows and bring the price back up. Hmm. Well... Where do we get all this whey? Then, according to resources, there are just a handful of suppliers for whey product, and they get it from manufacturers who collect the waste byproduct from cheese. So the two main manufacturers for processed whey protein are uh, Glambia of Ireland and Hillmar of California. 
And the whey is highly processed and filtered, and then they can produce an array of protein powders from it. So supplement companies like Optium and Dimatize uh, order various protein powders from these sources and then add their own ingredients like flavorings, colorings, calcium caseinate, some digestive enzymes, a little salt, a little sugar, maybe some soy, and anti-caking agents uh, to finish off their product that most people are buying in the store. So uh, most body fitness experts... um, and you know, are saying so, you know, not all the way products are the same and nutritional effectiveness will vary. And a lot of the body uh, fitness experts advise people to check for fat and carbohydrate values and the lower the better. And most products will contain what is called a hydrolyzed whey protein. So a high quality whey product will have more whey protein that's isolated, indicating 90% purity of the whey protein. So the hydrolyzed protein is processed into by your small intestine and it's in fragments and it has uh, more filtering to it and more processing to it. Therefore, a lot of the whey products on the market can have less than 35% whey protein and typically will cost less. So um, not all whey products are the same. And what about raw milk? A lot of people say, why don't we just do that? Well, when we look at the raw milk, we find it contains whey and casein. And the main protein in raw milk is not whey. That's only 20%. uh, But it's actually the casein, which is 80%. So where uh, whey protein is quickly metabolized to feed muscles, the casein protein is slowly absorbed, and it helps to prevent muscle reduction in the absence of food. And some whey protein products will include casein hydrosolate um, to, you know, kind of quicken the absorption process. But according to fitness expert and author of Unlock Your Muscle Gene, Ori Hoffmickler, he says that finding authentic casein in your whey product, which is preferred, but it can be hard to find. So the manufacturers will use acid, he says, and heat to extract the casein for, from the raw milk, and this kills a lot of the nutrition, and toxic residues remain. So Hoffmickler notes that whole milk casein protein binds with calcium and phosphate to function properly in your system. So the acids in the processing of the milk and the protein of it tend to kill that balance and put acid residues in your body instead. So processing whole foods with heat or acids produce, he says, an inorganic product. And the side effects would include aftertaste, heartburn, bloating, various digestion problems, and allergic reactions. So people with weak kidneys or kidney problems or liver problems should avoid weight protein products. Pasteurized and homogenized milk products are also a problem due to the processing. Kills nutrition, leaves the heat-hardy bacteria to thrive. And according to Hoffmeckler, he says technically heat protein gets carcinogenic due to its changes in its molecule integrity, which reduces digestibility and increases nitrogen waste. An increased load of nitrogenous waste material in the colon can ferment and promote cancer, end of quote. Wow, that's not good. Um, Well, you know, and so according to Hoffmeckler, people who use the whey protein products would pretty much need to eat plenty of digestive-resistant starches or 
soluble fiber to act as substrates for the healthy gut flora to counteract the protein fermentation process and help protect you from the colon cancer. Well, uh, and you want to save muscle. You want to keep the muscle. And according to the December 1997, 1997 research that was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, there were two groups of patients, and they were tested on the whey versus the casein protein. And the group using the whey protein without the casein in it had a 25% loss of muscle mass compared to the group that had the casein product. So the research team was conc- concluded that by keeping the casein protein, it reduces the amount of protein we burn for fuel in a seven-hour period and improves the protein balance. Now, physicians and scientists state that muscles cannot grow and retain without these two proteins in balance. So the best source will be unprocessed whole foods, but we should consider milk to be one of them. That's in a question, according to Dr. Tom Cowan of Western Price Foundation, he said milk contains sugars and any milk product raw or processed will affect our brain's opioid receptors. And he adds that this is why people are addicted to milk products. And he gives, he goes on to say that the opiate stimulates, uh, disrupt our immune system and it becomes an immune system suppressor. And he refers to a European study that found that when HIV and AIDS or cancer patients were given pain medicines containing opiates, that it was suppressed. It suppressed the immune system. Therefore, Dr. Cowan suggests that anyone with immune system issues should avoid milk products, and that includes whey products. So if milk contains elements that can make us addicts to milk, and it can make us addicts to milk products, and it can suppress the immune system, which is a safeguard for our body, you know, to fight off disease like cancer, then avoiding milk sounds like a healthy thing. Mm. Well, let's get the protein in balance, because when we have food sources that offer us balanced proteins, we can experience the following benefits. Okay, so uh, we can have a leaner body with greater unwanted fat, um, and we have more antioxidants and more cancer protection, and we have low triglycerides, and we have a better immune system function and more antibacterial fighting ability. All right, so let's look at some of these whole protein sources that we can tap into. One whole food with balanced protein comes from animals, but from not from animals, but from chlorophyll-rich sources. For instance, chlorella is a high dose of chlorophyll. Spirulina also offers this rich nutrient based on plant proteins. And many people will turn to these plant sources to obtain the nutrition they normally would get with eating platefuls of vegetables. So the blessing behind the whole food sources of these nutrients is that they are perfectly balanced. So you don't have to worry about that. And we don't have to worry about isolated risks, uh, highly processed or non-organic nutrients here. So according to an alternative medicine expert, Dr. Christopher Josh Axe, uh, he says chlorella contains 16 grams of protein in just three tablespoons. Uh, now, TV personality Dr. Oz, Oz, he pointed out that beef gives you protein. About four ounces of beef will get you 29 grams to 36 grams of the protein. A sirloin steak, about 35 grams of protein. However, this is, this protein also, you, you get calories with that. You get saturated fats with that and cholesterol. So if you want to lose weight but you want the proteins, 
the plant proteins like chlorella and spirulina, they will line up the nutrients that are easily metabolized without loading on the calories and unwanted fats and risking you to cardiovascular disease. So an ounce of chlorella will give you 16 grams of protein. It also will have vitamin A, vitamin B2, vitamin B1, vitamin B6, vitamin B3, iron, magnesium, and zinc. Now, natural health insurance, uh, that's what you're going to get when you get some whole foods going in your lifestyle. Because, you know, I've been an herbalist for about 20 years, and I've learned that the right nutrition is kind of like having a no-premium health insurance because better nutrition lowers your health risk. Therefore, if you decide to use chlorella and spirulina as plant protein sources for healthier muscles, then, um, you know, and it's easier to retain the muscle mass, then you might want to go with the following benefits it offers you. Uh, so your plant proteins, like you find in spirulina and chlorella, they will protect your eye tissue and improve night vision. The, you, will be, you will be more resistant to stress and fatigue. You will, it will help prevent migraine headaches. It improves your skin health and prevents acne, protects against bowel cancer, improves sleep, helps the body to manage blood sugars, lowers your cholesterol and triglycerides, and deters the allergic reactions you can get with whey products. Also improves nervous system health, improves your digestion and the health of your reproductive system, including the prostate for you guys. Also strengthens bones, improves the immune system function to fight infection, and protects the body from heavy metals and radiation. Wow. That's quite the benefit list. So kind of obvious that, you know, the benefits that you get from plant proteins instead of animal protein is where, you know, you won't have a cancer risk, you won't have an addiction risk, it won't suppress the immune system. So when you're using your plant proteins like chlorella and spirulina, uh, you're taking in whole food nutrients that are perfectly balanced. Uh, they fight the oxidative stress on a cellular level, which means that you'll be able to dump more unwanted fat and improve your skin health and look younger. Mm. So your plant protein sources, uh, you can find them in many of the stores, in powders, tablets, and even beverages. The thing that you want to look for is an organic source and one that is not exposed to radiation. So in the past, the islands of Hawaii were the, uh, had the highest quality of chlorella and spirulina, but now with the Fukushima nuclear incident in Japan, um, it kind of put a cloud over all the naturally collected Pacific sources. So you want to be careful and also investigate your freshwater sources due to the pollution motorboats add to water. Now, in the meantime, some of the farm-cultivated sources are pretty good, and they're the safest, thereby significantly limiting not only the radiation and the pollution factors. So companies that harvest farm-cultivated chlorella and spirulina are also very careful to monitor their water quality and test for any kind of radiation and pollution levels. Now, the folks at Apothecary Herbs, they have um, the body food mix, which does have your chlorella, your spirulina, and that wonderful spinach, along with some other things in there to help you with your weight loss and muscle mass training, bulking up. And it comes from quality farm cultivated sources. So certified organic, farm cultivated. In addition to the plant protein in the body food mix, you're also going to get 22 natural amino acids and vitamins and minerals. Uh, that are all water-soluble. So you can just add this powdered mix to juice or water, 
and um, and it's quickly absorbed. It's in the system working and within 60 seconds. And you will feel that the body is satisfied and you won't overeat and you won't want to snack on some of the empty calorie stuff out there. And so you can stick to your three healthy meals a day and your exercise regimen and lose that unwanted fat that you want to lose. So thepowerherbs.com, you can click on energy sources to get over there to see the body food mix as well as the ginseng. If you want to add the American or Siberian ginseng for stamina and more energy. Uh, Also, um, if you're worried about overeating, the gentian root is, I think, on the digestive page. So look for the digestion herbs there. Uh, so you can check that out. Okay, we have a few minutes. Oh, the website, thepowerherbs.com, and the phone number if you want to give them a call and ask for the Body Foundation Food Mix. The number is 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. All right, we got a few minutes, so we're going to tap into some of the things we didn't get done the other day when we were talking about updating our food pyramid to protect our health. Um, so we want to make sure that we're fast-tracking a lot of good nutrition into the body. And um, so if you feel a little stressed out on a daily basis, you know, a little nutrition is going to go, or a lot of healthy nutrition is going to go a long way for you. Um, now, uh, we want to make sure that uh, the nutrients and foods are transported properly, and uh, we're also going to use foods that help carry toxins out of the body. That's a good thing. So we want to cleanse and nourish when we, you know, feed ourselves. And so uh, there's a fluid system within the, uh, the body and a delivery system and an eliminator system. So these are areas where uh, you'll see a lot of things evident uh, in the body chemically. And uh, so if we get sick, these functions can slow or even um, build up. So... Um, the body has to have, for the cleanse and nourish mechanism to work, it has to have natural calcium, natural iodine, natural silicon, and sodium. So without those elements, the blood in your body is going to be sick and full of disease. The lymphatic system won't be able to retain its balance of fluids in order to assist with nutrition delivery and detoxifying of the system. So that's how important calcium iodine, silicon, and sodium are, and you want them in natural uh, sources. You do not want them in synthetic sources. So uh, calcium, you know, we hear about this good for your bones, your skin, and connective tissue, uh, but uh, it's also going to provide a source of natural calcium is going to provide what we need, especially when we're out in hot weather. It helps us to retain a healthy temperature. So um, your pasteurized dairy products that contain calcium, it has a limited amount of calcium, and it doesn't have the other elements of magnesium and boron so the body can absorb it properly. So you want to always look for sources that have your calcium, magnesium, and boron with two parts calcium, one part boron, one part magnesium, and you find that perfect ratio in your green leafy vegetables, oranges, and some of your herbs like horsetail and comfrey and oatstra. So plants and herbs contain this natural calcium base with the re- required elements for uptake, your minerals, like barley and kale. Um, uh, these are ingredients in an old Danish broth which was given to children to strengthen their bones. And the Danes also knew that natural calcium in plants will not produce calcium deposits 
or hardening of, of deposits in arteries or uh, bone spurs on our kidney stones. Um, also, uh, you want to watch those animal supplements for calcium because a lot of times they've got seashells in there and um, bone meal is from cow's bones. So uh, that's where they're getting all that calcium supposedly, but it's not a balanced source. Um, so if you're looking for some foods with super calcium other than your green leafy vegetables, uh, try some sesame seeds. Tiny seed, but packed full of calcium with your magnesium and boron. Also your dulse seaweed, your kelp, your whole grains, and uh, herbs like horsetail, oat straw, comfrey, and lobelia. Of course, if you want to make it easy on yourself, uh, you can go to thepowerherbs.com and, of course, that body food mix does have dults in it, along with your spinach and spirulina and chlorella. Man, that product's getting better and better as I go along, you know. Uh, also, they have a liquid calcium, if you just want to use that, uh, so you can check that out, too. It's under the uh, herbal tinctures tab at thepowerherbs.com. So uh, you can correct a lot of things with, with that liquid in just a few months. It's just an amazing thing. It's like a miracle in a bottle. That's God, though. We can't take the credit. See, God did that. He's the master chemist. Now, iodine is another wonder. Uh, Americans, a lot of Americans have a thyroid disease because they're not getting natural iodine anymore. And modern medicine is relying on the processed salt to be iodized, but that's not even a real iodine. That's a synthetic iodine that's added back in. So a lot of people, you know, are on low salt or no salt diets. And, of course, that processed salt is the not good. But your organic sun-dried salt is a uh, heart heart friendly it's not going to give you hypertension and it carries along the micro minerals you need for electrolytes and your heart to beat correctly and your nervous system to work and so uh, sun-dried ocean salt is your best version of salt and it's gray in color not white so look for that if you can't find it in your stores guess who has it yep the folks at apothecary herbs you will be amazed at how a salt in your system can just turn your whole life around uh, on a health level. It is one of those natural things the body needs and it needs all the time. Um, now, silicon is essential for tissue repair, strength, and firmness of all those muscles and tissues. Uh, also, if you fracture a bone, you're going to need silicon. Of course, uh, you're going to find, of course, your silicon in oats and barley, alfalfa, beetroot, which are, by the way, in the body food mix. And, um, you know, you're also going to find um, uh, silicon is, you know, a lot of people, if they have boils or cysts, it means they're silicon deficient. So if you've got any of that going on, you know, you might want to check out the calcium formula or the body food mix at thepowerherbs.com. Uh, of course, we talked about the salt, which will have your natural sodium in there. Uh, but sodium you'll find also in cabbage, water chestnuts, garlic, peaches, radishes, and broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cashews, and hot peppers. So, uh, but if you want to, if you want to supplement and you don't want to go to all the trouble of buying all that produce, then uh, call the folks at Apothecary Herbs and get their catalog. It'll be, you'll be amazed how powerful you can be. Uh, the number is 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663, thepowerherbs.com. Uh, don't forget to sign up for their newsletters if you do have email because that's how they're delivered and they're free. Subscriptions are free and you'll get uh, information each and every week in your email from them and it's an amazing thing to have. Uh, also, um, 
if you don't have the newest catalog, do request that. So the new one you know, arrived just around Thanksgiving. So if you don't have the new one, uh, do call and get that because the pricing is different in there. And also they've added new sizes and a few new things. So if you don't have the Internet to go check them out, then do call for the new catalog at 866-229-3663. Apothecary Herbs, that's where your health care options just became endless. Oh, and I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. So seek medical advice, if you dare, from a licensed medical physician before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Till next time, be well. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
Covenanters. Good evening and welcome to the Covenanters call. This is Pastor Mike Hoover and we are broadcasting from warm and almost muggy southern Indiana and uh, we appreciate you tuning into the broadcast. Uh, we won't be able to use the option of calling in this evening because of some technical difficulties on our end but uh, we welcome you into the chat room. Trust if you have the opportunity you'll come on in there and uh, spend some lively conversation with some of the most intellectual people on the internet and uh, enjoy that if you would. Uh, we encourage you to do that. Let me mention a couple of prayer requests as we begin this evening. First of all, uh, we appreciate if you continue to be in prayer for little Helen Rose. Uh, Helen is doing very well, uh, almost four years old now. Looks like she's going to be receiving treatments for the next several years until they determine that, uh, as far as they know, they've completely eradicated that leukemia from her blood system. But I know that her parents would appreciate your phone call, or excuse me, I shouldn't say your phone calls because I'm not going to give their number out, but uh, they would appreciate your prayers. And uh, just remember them in prayer. Continue to pray for our friend Shelby. And then an update on our friend Deborah down there north of Ashland, uh, North Carolina. She's had uh, quadruple bypass surgery down there and now is in a place where she is recovering and doing much better. And so uh, we praise the Lord for that and encourage you to continue to pray for her as well. Let me make mention, I know it's several months away, but Lord willing, about the middle of March uh, this year, we're going to be up there preaching for Pastor Jason Burton and the people of the Cornerstone Historic Baptist Church in Union City, Indiana. Looking forward to that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night meeting. And we will give you more information as we get closer up there. But I uh, wanted to let you know that right up front. Well, Happy New Year. Um, I'm anxiously uh, anticipating what kind of changes are going to possibly take place in this nation after the 20th of January as we spend the last all 16, 17 days or so of uh, hang dog down. Everybody's upset. It's everybody else in the world's fault. Liberals feeling sorry for themselves and, and look forward uh, to what may take place with the new administration. Just pray for the president. Uh, first of all, if he doesn't know Christ as his Savior, Mr. Trump needs to put his faith and trust in the only Savior of all mankind, and we encourage him to do that and encourage you to pray for him. Then pray for the transitional time, no matter what you may think, pro or con about Mr. Trump or the outgoing administration. The bottom line is this. This is one of the most fragile times uh, for the government of our nation, and uh, just pray that God will give wisdom and look forward. Uh, to what's going to take place. I'm excited to see what God's going to do. You know, we hear a lot of griping nowadays about government, and, and government has its place. But if you'll study your Bible, that's not our message tonight because we want to get back to talking about America's descent into tyranny. But uh, you'll realize from the Word of God that man man's government, in other words, uh, the force, the power of government uh, that God established was in a way, God's punishment upon the nation of Israel, first of all and foremost, because they refused to follow him. And so man-made government is part of God's judgment, and that's something we need to realize. But we've been talking about that here on the Covenanters call now for the past number of months. Let's continue looking into the fact that America is descending into tyranny. You know, human governments operate under laws. Absent law, there's anarchy. And no government could last long amid anarchy. Read, read of the destruction, if you would, of the civil government in France during and following the French Revolution of 1792. And you'll see there an apt illustration of how anarchy destroys government. So all governments make and enforce laws to control the behavior of the subjects and the citizens or the people over whom the government rules. 
In the case of post-revolution France, the answer to the anarchy that prevailed was the tyranny of Napoleon's dictatorship. You see, friends, just because a government passes and enforces laws, however, does not mean that the laws are good laws or that the government is a good or moral government. In fact, most human governments in the history of the world have passed bad or wicked laws, they themselves being bad and wicked and godless governments. A tyrannical form of government is a bad, it's a wicked, it's a godless government. America is headed for a tyranny. You see, the laws which will characterize the American tyranny will be bad. They'll be wicked. They will be godless laws. The people will be required to honor and obey these bad, wicked, and godless laws. Lawbreakers will be tyrannized. Lawbreakers are punished. Under the American tyranny, those who do not honor and obey the bad, wicked, and godless laws will be punished. You, as a Christian living in the coming American tyranny, will be required to honor and obey the bad, wicked, and godless laws, or you will be punished. Are you ready? Are you prepared to honor and obey a wicked, tyrannical government? Do you believe that is what God wants from you? Is that what your pastors told you is required from you? Are you, will you, I should say, be willing to do this obeying because of false teaching or simply out of fear? If you refuse in any way to obey the bad, wicked, and godless laws of the coming American tyranny, you will be punished. Are you ready and prepared for that? God knows that a tyranny is coming to America. In fact, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, prophesied over 2,000 years ago of the coming tyranny in America. He did not name America specifically for any mention of America to be found, of uh, uh, finding America uh, in the Bible. You won't find it specifically. However, Jesus Christ did make declarations about the state of the world in the last days. You see, America is a part of that last day's world. Jesus told his disciples and, and us what the world would be like in the last days. And Jesus spoke of the last days both before and including the time of the tribulation period. Jesus prophesied to his disciples and to us of the state of the world as it approaches the tribulation. And we've already established that America will in no way be aloof from or live above or be untouched by the bad things which Jesus himself prophesied will come upon the world in the last days. Do you believe this? Or do you prefer being an ostrich? The signs we've been speaking of for many, many programs are around us. They're to be found here, now, in the good old USA. But the most dependable, inescapable, accurate and truthful delineation of these signs is from Jesus Christ himself. He mentions signs. He names them specifically. So perhaps we should take a look at what Jesus says regarding these signs. These signs are the pointers to the indicators of the American tyranny which now looms before us. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives a most 
complete description to his disciples of the end days. He does this in answer to a question from them. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. Now, before we go on, let's answer one question. Is America a part of the world? Well, the answer is yes. America is a part of the world. Therefore, when the disciples of Jesus asked him to tell them about the end of the world, without knowing of the future existence of America, they were including present-day America in their question. Now, does that make sense to you? All right, let's go on. In answer to their question, Jesus told his disciples first that many men would come in his name saying, I am Christ. Jesus went on to say that those men would deceive many. Has this come to pass? Is this prophecy regarding the end times coming to pass? Well, the answers are yes and yes. The most obvious and fullest demonstration of men claiming to be Christ and deceiving many is found within the Roman Catholic cult religion. Every pope claims to be the human personal representative and voice for Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, this lie, deceiving many, has been perpetrated for hundreds of years by hundreds of popes upon billions of people. The Pope is called the Holy Father and is worshipped as the Vicar of Christ by well over one billion Roman Catholics around the world. Now certainly, and with no doubt whatsoever, the Pope claims that when he speaks, he speaks the very voice of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic cult religion denies the literal bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth to rule and reign. No, its false doctrine perpetrates the lie that Jesus Christ has already returned to earth and rules the earth in the form and fashion of the Roman Catholic Church organization. Therefore, Jesus Christ, through his chosen vessel, the Pope, at any particular time, is indeed ruling the earth through his church and through his man, the Pope. And friends, that lie becomes the foundation for another deception from the Roman Catholic cult religion, that no person may be saved for heaven except through the Roman Catholic Church. The deception is that if Jesus Christ now rules through the Roman Catholic Church, and if the Pope is the personal representative and audible voice of Jesus Christ on the earth, then salvation can only be through the Roman Catholic Church. An officer of the law is considered to be the personal representative and audible voice of the law. In years past, an officer might stand at the locked and barred door of a wanted man and cry out, Open up in the name of the law. Jesus prophesied to his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 5, that many will come in my name. Have you ever wondered how it might come to pass that hundreds of men would be wandering around on the earth claiming to be Jesus Christ, coming in the name of Christ? Such is not a correct interpretation of this part of the Lord's prophecy. Yes, there is the occasional some young moon who claims to be Jesus Christ reincarnate. But many coming in the name of Christ. That many 
is the hundreds of Roman Catholic popes through the centuries since Jesus Christ's presence on the earth, who indeed come in his name, claiming to be the human, personal, physical, audible representative of Jesus Christ. That is every bit as much as coming in the name of Jesus Christ as was that law officer standing before the door of the wanted man crying, open up in the name of the law. He was there in the name of the law. Was he the very express actual law? Well, no, he was not. The law, written words in a law book, was safely ensconced on a bookshelf in the local judge's chambers. But that law officer was the personal, visible, audible agent of the law. And he had the authority to represent himself as the law. So, the Pope of Rome considers that he is the personal, visible, audible representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. When he speaks, it is Christ speaking through him. When he makes a ruling, a judgment, issues a proclamation, it's the same as Jesus Christ doing so through him. Yes, that Pope considers he is and comes to the world in the name of Christ. And he believes he has the authority from Jesus Christ to represent himself as Christ because of the perverted doctrine of the Roman Catholic cult religion that claims that Jesus Christ himself established Peter as the first pope, giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that's another one of their perversions. This gross lie perpetrated by the Roman Catholic whore for centuries is a continuing fulfillment of the very first part of Jesus' revelation of the end times to his disciples. Many have come in his name. Is America the United States, deceived by this lie that the Pope of Rome is to be considered as Jesus Christ on the earth? Well, it sure has been. This mere man, by the way, lost man bound for hell, posing as the visible, audible representative of Jesus Christ on the earth, commands the respect and the adoration of the United States government from the President to the Congress. In his recent visit to America, Pope Francis held private sessions with Barry Barack Hussein Sotero Obama, the man that claims to be the President of the United States. He then held an open public meeting with the entire Congress of the United States, addressing them in a way and tenor as to be considered as giving them their marching orders for the future. While in America, Pope Francis was thronged by crowds of adoring, worshiping people wherever he went. He was cried over, kissed on, bowed to, prayed to, idolized, and exalted from politicians such as the Speaker of the House at that time, John Boehner, to the man in the street who would kiss his hand and beg for forgiveness of sins. Is this treatment reserved for other visiting foreign leaders or presidents or prime ministers to the United States? Well, no. Well, then what's the difference? What is it that impels such worship and adoration for the man from the Vatican? I'll tell you what it is, friends. 
It is the false belief that this man is Jesus Christ on the earth. What other man on the earth may command such reverence and homage and veneration from such otherwise exclusive and arrogant groups like the General Assembly of the United Nations? The nations of the earth, assembled together in the form of their representatives, sat enthralled and mesmerized in the United Nations building as the Pope of Rome addressed them, signaling to them his desires and requirements for them to follow in order that they may rule over an earth free from war and poverty and disease and racial animosity and religious bigotry and full of peace. Why would that group of would-be world rulers give ear and audience to one man, hearkening to his admonitions, giving his ideas and plans supremacy over even their own? As they listened, they were content to seek for and to take the advice and direction from this man. They placed it in high esteem and entertained unequivocal plans to carry forth on his direction for their future action as they think that they guide the progress of all the nations of the earth. What one man in the whole entire earth has such influence over the governments of individual nations like the United States or over the collective representatives of all nations like the UN except the Pope of Rome? Does he claim Christ speaking through him in the long line of popes before him who have made the same claim? Yes, he has. As those before him have deceived many, has he deceived many? Yes, he has. If we read the account of Jesus' revelation to his disciples in the book of Luke, we find a solemn admonition from the Lord Jesus regarding those who come in his name. Luke 21, verse 8. Go ye not, therefore, after them, Jesus said. You see, friends, the whole world is going after the Pope of Rome. It is a gross error. Let me ask you a question. might be a long one, but let me ask it anyway. How will the compliance of the government of the United States to the wishes and desires and plans of this man posing as the personal representative of Jesus Christ on the earth go along with American tyranny? Well, indeed, will the intents of the Pope of Rome affect and influence and guide the developing American tyranny as it moves its gruesome self upon the people of the land? Yes, it will. Now, pay attention to the signs. They are obvious and all around us. The Pope of Rome is at the epicenter of the false idea that all religions are relevant. They're meaningful. All religions are acceptable and practical, and they're all equal as they play their part in the lives of billions of human inhabitants of the earth. You see, in a very real sense, this doctrine is a grand presentation of worldwide apostasy. The Pope of Rome calls upon the people of the world, which includes the United States, to show honor and respect and deference to all religions as they each and all contain and exalt and adhere to certain eternal truths. 
Well, this idea expressed by the Pope of Rome, by the way, it's not his idea exclusively, but will this idea expressed by the Pope of Rome take root in America? Well, of course it will. Friends, it already has for many years. The first example of its root in the United States has been the craftily, subtly, treacherously altered idea of the so-called Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which declares, and I quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. End of quote. Simply put, the religion spoken of by the men who composed the First Amendment is the religion of Jesus Christ. It's the faith of Christ. And only that religion which is associated with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God. Now check this out for yourself. I'm not going to take the time to provide the documentation to you right now. But suffice it to say that the framers of the U.S. Constitution only recognize the faith of Jesus Christ and the religion accompanying it as true religion. All other religions they rightly considered as false, in error, pagan, and heathen. Therefore, they would and did consider that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment did not, nor was it ever intended to, apply to the false religions of the world. Only Christianity was in view, and it was put forth as to be conducted among the various sects of Christians in the land as they so deemed led by the Lord God to do so. This right they intended to protect through the First Amendment. No other interpretation is necessary, nor is it permissible. But the perversion has been placed and accepted, has it not? Yes, friends, nearly 99.9% .9 of all Americans today believe the lie that the so-called Establishment Clause of the First Amendment was put into the Constitution as a protection for all religions and to allow and permit every person who follows whatever religion to do so freely as he's led by his false god within the borders of the United States. This perversion of the First Amendment is represented in the Pope's idea that all religions are worthy, they're valid, and they should be respected and regarded as such. This is a sign, dear listener. Therefore, the tyrannical laws regarding religion and its conduct are soon going to reign in America. Now, we've already spoken of some of the restrictions and requirements that will be placed upon American Christians as a result of this false idea. Next, Jesus prophesied to his disciples that they, now speaking of future believers and disciples, would hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now that's Matthew again, chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. Many Christians, including those who assume the mantle of explaining prophecy uh, to their fellow Christians, 
take small and cursory note of this particular part of the Lord's prophetic utterance to his disciples. These are specific signs, though, that we need to pay attention to. There have always been wars, they say. For centuries there have been wars, and nations have risen against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms. There have been famines and pestilences, they say. So we're told to accept the idea that Jesus was merely speaking in, in generalities, if you please, and in a way which would take into account a grand, long passing of time in human history. Therefore, we cannot be very specific about this particular part of the Lord's prophecy concerning the end of the world. Amazing. Well, was Jesus answering his disciples honestly? Well, of course he was. But to be honest, he would need to be addressing the specifics of their question. Now think with me for a moment. They did not ask him to display for them a panorama of human history from 33 A.D. until the end of the world, which could be sometime far ahead in time. No, they asked him a very specific question, set in a very specific time. They wanted to know about Jesus' second coming. That's a very specific time. And they wanted to know about the end of the world. That's another very specific time. And they knew that both these events, Christ's second coming and the end of the world, were to be very close together in time. They wanted to get to the answer, and quickly. There was no need for Jesus to answer their questions in generalities, and of course he did not do so. Have you ever been reading a very interesting book and found it so enticing to skip to the last page or the last chapter to find out how the book ended, even though you had 200 pages left to read? Yes, you have. Well, that's the mindset of the disciples as they walked along with Jesus, having just left the temple. They wanted to skip to the last page. They wanted to get the lowdown on how and when things were going to end up. So Jesus obliged them with a specific answer to a specific question. Now, bear with me here as we perform some groundwork for the correct interpretation of this section of Jesus' answer to his disciples. Yes, I know the Bible says that no scripture is by private interpretation. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's not up to you or I to determine what God means by what he says. We can determine what God means by, first of all, what he says and what he says elsewhere within the same book. So that's going to be our goal. But friends, I find myself right near the end of the first portion of our broadcast. So before we get into the laying of this groundwork answering this question, we're going to take a break. Please stay tuned now to the second half of the Covenanters call. We'll be right back.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Prophesied through an angel to Daniel 
of things that will occur in the last days. There in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, it's revealed to you and I that in the end of time, and I quote here, knowledge shall be increased, end of quote. Now, in general, we know how that knowledge has increased over the years. With the advent of computers, the availability of knowledge increased substantially. Then, with the coming of the World Wide Web, commonly known as the Internet, the availability of knowledge increased in leaps and bounds. There is a greater body of knowledge available today to the average person than was ever available to anyone in the past, even to scientists and PhDs and, and monarchs. After all, they say, just Google it. In fact, in the past, especially before the discovery and use of electricity in all its fabulous employments, knowledge was not widespread at all. When knowledge came to human minds through human communication, it came as a result of slow growth. It came through word of mouth, through books and newspapers, through attending schools and universities over periods of years. With the discovery of electricity, we got the telegraph, the telephone, the radio, the television, computers, the internet, smartphones, and future gadgets that we don't even know about yet. Knowledge and its availability has increased exponentially throughout the world since the last half of the 19th century. Furthermore, the acquisition of knowledge has been tremendously shortened in time as it has increased in volume. What happens in a part of the world thousands of miles away today may be known instantly all over the world. When Marco Polo took his fabled exposition to the Orient in 1271 AD, the people in Europe didn't know a thing about it for decades. Today, when the U.S. Air Force murders suspected terrorists in Afghanistan with a drone bomb directed and guided from a secret concrete underground bunker in Colorado or Virginia, you and I can know about it instantly. We can even see the impact, the destruction, and the death as it happens in real time as the drone obliterates its target. Yes, as the angel told Daniel, knowledge has increased. In fact, to be precise, the angel told Daniel these very words that are preserved in the Old King James Bible. Knowledge shall be increased. Most often we assume that this declaration deals with the amount or body or totality of knowledge or things that are known by men. And it mostly does include this idea. But the definition of this word knowledge used by the angel to Daniel also carries this meaning, cunning. Cunning means crafty, deceitful, skillful, and ingenious. When knowledge, that is understanding of things, increases, then the use of that knowledge in ways not before utilized may also increase. Those new uses of the new or increased knowledge may be cunning uses. They may be deceitful but they may also be skillful and ingenious as in a way of helping people or making things better or easier or more efficient. Certainly the discovery of electricity, that's knowledge, and its many uses, that's cunning, is an example. So knowledge may be increased as in the mere size of the amount of knowledge to be known and available. And it may increase as it relates to its availability in time 
but it also may be increased as in the ways or manners in which the things known are put to use. That's what we call technology. Today's global society is characterized by technology. In fact, nothing arising from man's present-day imagination is more driven, more moved, molded, and manipulated than is technology. In its base form, technology is the uses to which mankind puts his knowledge. And as knowledge increases in the last days, according to Daniel's prophecy, so technology increases. Technology has the power to create great and multitudinous changes in society. As it does this, society itself changes. Technology affects the ways and manners in which people operate as much or more than any other outside influence. That's why the angel told Daniel that knowledge shall be increased. Not just the mere size of knowledge grows larger or increases, or the access to knowledge in time being shortened, but the ways and manners and technologies of using the growing body of knowledge increases and expands. I believe all three of these aspects of knowledge shall be increased are included as part of the angel's prophecy. Now, if we were honest, we can easily prove that all three of these aspects of increasing knowledge have leaped forth in tremendous bounds during the last 100 years, and especially so during the last 25 years. Would Daniel 12, verse 4 not imply that we are indeed living in the last days? In Marco Polo's day, even in the days of the American Revolution, for people to become aware of things, especially something new, it took a long time to get around. Surely King George III of England, a monarch, a very important person, privy to more knowledge than most people only knew of things happening adverse to him in his Americas, colonies or months after they happened. For him, knowledge, that is the acquisition and availability of the stuff, had not increased much from hundreds of years earlier. Today, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, knows instantly about an anti-Russian uprising in the neighboring country of Ukraine, a former Russian possession. Barry Barack Hussein Sotero Obama, the pretender to the American presidency, knows instantly when a terrorist organization, organization excuse me, such as ISIS blasts Damascus the capital of Syria, with a rocket. Both men may watch these events unfold in real time through the use of satellites which ever circle the earth looking down upon the human domain. Now, let's gather a true understanding of what Jesus told his disciples about wars and rumors of wars. In 1775, when war broke out in the English colonies in America, King George III didn't hear about it for weeks. His knowledge had not increased much. Even in 1914, when the Austrian crown prince was assassinated in Sarajevo, Serbia, people in the USA didn't hear about it for hours. But today, when the man posing as the President of the United States makes a declaration that we, that is the USA, may resort to military intervention to quell the ISIS uprising in Syria, the people of the entire world know about it in seconds. The rumor takes root as soon as it is uttered. 
Jesus told his disciples there shall be wars and rumors of wars, characterizing the end of the world, a specific time which they'd asked him about. How many rumors of a war with the nation of Iran have been spread abroad in the good old USA in the past 10, 12 years, let's say? Many. Since the presidency of George Bush Jr. and during the time of Barry Barack Hussein Sotera Obama, there have been many, many rumors of war with Iran set flying across America, across the globe. The rumors of wars in other parts of the world, it seems, come daily to our ears and our knowledge. We hear of rumors of wars almost daily. It's a common occurrence. We almost get immune to it desensitized, if you please, to the idea that there might be another war breaking out in this or that country. Instant knowledge, knowledge being increased, concerning wars and rumors of wars is a relatively new thing for the people of the earth. I believe that Jesus put the answer right where it needed to be as he told his disciples about wars and rumors of wars, that these things in the end of the world will be common, known by all men, a fact of daily life in the end of the world. This fact has only come to be in the last 50 years or so. It began in earnest during the time known as the Cold War from about 1947 to about 1989. Yes, there have always been wars, even rumors of wars, but in the end of the world, the specific time asked about by Jesus' disciples. The wars and rumors of wars will be a significant part of daily life. When Jesus told his disciples about wars and rumors of wars, he was speaking of today, not centuries ago when the English and the French fought a war that lasted a hundred years. His disciples wanted to know specifically about the end of time, and he told them, for our learning and admonition. These are signs. Jesus' disciples, that's us or we, are not to be troubled about the imminent time of the end when we hear of wars and see wars taking place. The end is not yet, Jesus told us, or them. He reveals that these terrible wars, wars and rumors of wars, must first come before the end of the world. These are signs. The American tyranny still has time to develop and come into being before the end. Jesus broadened his revelation when he next told his disciples that nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Again, one may think that such things have been going on in the world for centuries. They were occurring even in Jesus' day and the very day he was speaking to his disciples. So, for us to hear that nation is rising against nation, or kingdom is against kingdom, is no big deal. It happens all the time, and has been happening for a long, long time. This is what we hear from Bible prophecy teachers. Well, was this a prophecy with meaning, or was it not? Was Jesus merely taking up time as he answered his disciples? Or should we seek to understand what he told them in the context of the end of the world? That's the context of their question, after all. They didn't want to know about all the times down through the centuries when nations should rise against nation or kingdom against kingdom. They wanted to know about the end of the world. 
and so Jesus accommodated their request. A most obvious example of the statement by Jesus that nations should rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom was World War I. Why was that specific war called a world war? It's because a thing took place which had never, ever happened before in the history of men on the earth. That thing was the war which engulfed many of the nations and kingdoms of the world. That's why it was called a world war. And it was the first such war ever. The world had never been at war before on such a grand scale. And that particular war involved nations and it involved kingdoms. Nations, for example, Serbia, Russia, Bulgaria, and the United States became embroiled in that war. But there were kingdoms also involved. One was known as the Kingdom of Great Britain. It was in 1914 when the war began, the British Commonwealth, which spanned the entire globe. There were many nations under direct governing rule of Great Britain at that time. And then there were other nations that were a part of the British Commonwealth who enjoyed a somewhat lesser degree of kingship over them from the British monarch. Yet they all answered to the King of England. As the British liked to boast, the sun never set upon the British Empire because it was so widespread across the globe. Nonetheless, Great Britain was indeed a kingdom in 1914, and it went to war against another kingdom. That kingdom was the kingdom of Austria-Hungary, which included not only Austria and Hungary, two nations, but as a thing called the Habsburg Empire, it included parts of modern Czechoslovakia, Italy, Poland, Romania, and what became Yugoslavia. These were all nations, as Jesus declared, but they were also part of a greater kingdom, just as Scotland, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand were parts of the Kingdom of Great Britain, just as Algeria, Morocco, Indochina, French West Africa, French Guiana, and French Sudan were all parts of the Kingdom of France in 1914. Several kingdoms took part in World War I. So we see for the very first time in human history an instance of nation rising against nation and simultaneously kingdom rising against kingdom. This was a very specific occurrence in a very specific time period near the very end of the world. This world war is part of a precise answer to a precise question. Jesus' answer was as precise as the question posed by his disciples. What a World War II then? In terms of combatants, that war included far more nations as participants than World War I. It included the two great oriental kingdoms of Japan and China. In fact, it was these kingdoms of Japan and China which stood against one another in warfare for several years before the actual advent of what became World War II. World War II involved 61 nations representing over half the world's population. Once more, in this war, the former kingdom of Great Britain, now only a nominal kingdom, more a commonwealth, became involved as her children, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, and Malta, entered the fray on her behalf. 
Within a short period of 20-odd years, the world had experienced the cataclysm of two world wars, a thing never heard of or seen before in the world. Do you think that Jesus' answer to his disciples' question was specific, or was it general? The things he prophesied were very specific, as he appended them to the specificity of the question asked. His men wished to know about the end of the world. Jesus told them of the end of the world without giving them a course in world history. He went straight to the time of the end, explaining to them what it would be like. Have we had a world war since the end of the Second World War? No. It's been over 70 years as of this message, but we have been flooded and overwhelmed with wars and rumors of wars since 1945, haven't we? The USA has been involved in at least 15 wars since 1945. From about 1947 to 1989, the USA directly and the entire world indirectly were involved in what became known as the Cold War. If that so-called war was anything, it was a hotbed, a hornet's nest, a beehive of rumors of wars. For over 50, or excuse me, 40 years, the people of the earth were constantly afraid because of the threat of a worldwide nuclear war which would have meant the end of the world and the end of human civilization. Well, what happened? Did the reported death of communism in 1989 end the fears of nuclear holocaust? Well, apparently so, at least in the minds of a lot of people. However, if you read what God says about the end of the world, the very worst, most dire circumstances of a worldwide catastrophe from war is just over the horizon. It's still ahead of us. As Jesus told his disciples very specific things about the end of the world, he added that there would be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. Should his specificity concerning these things be as clear as his specificity about wars? Yes. Within a short time after the death of Vladimir Lenin in 1924, Joseph Stalin took over the reins of the Communist Party and the land known as the United Soviet Socialist Republic. In reality, the USSR was a communist tyranny then, and it remains so today. Joseph Stalin's economic policies led to the planned, premeditated murder of at least 20 million Ukrainians through deliberate programs of government starvation. That's a famine on a grand scale. Can you comprehend it? One of the accompaniments of World War II especially were famines and pestilences. Nowhere were there things more prevalent and widespread as in communist Russia after the Nazi invasion of that land. Millions of Russians starved to death in the Nazi-besieged cities of Russia. Disease, uh, by the way, that's pestilence, racked the Russian population in these same cities. Unless you know absolutely nothing of the Russian famines during World War II because that information has been purposely removed from the public domain. You have to do your research to find these things out. For years, there's been widespread famine in and among the nations of Africa. These famines have, for a great part, been orchestrated or aided by the governments of those African countries. 
No one but God will ever know how many millions of Africans have been starved to death by their own governments. That's famine. Have you been informed in detail about these famines in Africa? No. You know very little, if anything, about these famines because that knowledge has been purposely withheld from you. From 1918 to 1919, the world's human population suffered from a swine flu epidemic. It's been estimated that upwards of 1% of the world population was decimated by that epidemic. This is a pestilence. No other pestilence in the history of mankind, not even the bubonic plague in Europe in the Middle Ages, accounts for more human deaths than the flu of 1918 to 1919. There's evidence that this particular flu pestilence was caused by human involvement. But a pestilence doesn't need to kill a great number of people to be called such. A pestilence is spoken of by Jesus in answer to his disciples' questions merely means a plague or a disease. What have we been seeing in, il in illustrative fact of Jesus' prophecy regarding pestilences in these last days? Well, we've seen the eradication of things that used to be called diseases. Things like smallpox, diphtheria, measles, typhoid, malaria, tuberculosis, even polio are very non-threatening to the human race in general. But what are the new pestilences, such as HIV, Ebola, STDs, C. diff, staph and E. coli, cancer, diabetes, and various diseases of the heart. These diseases are reported to be virulent, widespread, and often resistant to, to modern drug treatments. You'd think that modern medical science would continue its victorious route of such diseases and pestilences. But just the opposite seems to be occurring. Was Jesus being specific when he told his disciples that the end of the world would be characterized by pestilences? Did he not know that even though men gathered great knowledge and understood how to use that knowledge in cunning ways in the end of the world, that pestilence would, pestilences would accompany those very days? Most of us are acutely aware of the diversity in the spread and occurrence of earthquakes across the globe. In 2011, Several earthquakes struck Japan as the result of a tectonic plate shifting off the coast of that island country. Earthquakes are indeed occurring all over the earth. Each year it seems as if these quakes are taking place in geographical areas not subject to quakes in the past. And as geologists who study earthquakes get better at their business, we're told that the probability of more quakes and greater and more destructive quakes increases yearly. Do these people know something that only Jesus knew when he answered his disciples' question? Or did Jesus merely prophesy what we are seeing today in a very specific way? The earthquake in Japan destroyed the nuclear power plant of Fukushima. Since then, that slowly dying plant poisoned the oceans of the world with nuclear radiation. Sea creatures by the millions are perishing especially in the Pacific Ocean. Scientists and governments are telling us that they don't understand the source of this death in the oceans. Of course, they're lying to us. 
In a sense, this is a pestilence among the sea creatures of the Pacific. How many living sea animals in the Pacific Ocean are harvested and sold to the consuming human population of Earth who may in the future time be adversely affected by the harmful nuclear radiation in the bodies of those animals? What would such a pestilence be called? The New Madrid earthquake of 1811 caused the Mississippi River to flow backward for three days. The loss of life was minimal due to the low population density. Today, that same fault line, the New Madrid Fault, is held by scientists who study earthquakes as a great potential danger to the country. What was little populated in 1811 along that fault line, western Tennessee, southeastern Missouri, southwestern Illinois, and northeastern Arkansas, is now heavily populated. If an earthquake similar to that of 1811 were to occur along that fault line, the death toll and destruction would be horrendous. Small tremors occur on a regular basis along the New Madrid fault line. Folks that live 150 miles distant from that line often feel those tremors. Well, friends, this is the Covenanter's Call. We're going to have to break there until our next broadcast for this week. But once again, I would love to hear from you. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337 in Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Send me an email, themuggyown at cleanenter.net, T-H-E-M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N at C-L-E-A-N-I-N-T-E-R dot net. Or give us a phone call, 812-653-5578. You folks stay tuned now for two hours of American independence with Aladask and Ernie Sanders coming on at 7 p.m. Pacific time. The Frank Report at 8 p.m. Pacific time. We're finished. I hear the music. Until we meet you again on the airwaves, may God bless you is our prayer. Hey, have a great evening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold 
gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. And this is the American Independence Hour for Tuesday, the 22nd day of March, year of our Lord, 2016. We've got a great show tonight. All right, we have a couple of guests I'll introduce in a moment. We're going to be talking about IRS and a number of, I think, six or seven different individuals that are attacking in the courts in separate cases against the IRS that are operating on very similar premises, and we're going to talk about that tonight. First, I want to remind you, I am a man made in God's image, as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the Declaration of Independence, 70 year of our Lord, 1776. And what else? Uh, I'm broadcasting from within the borders of the state of Texas, a member state of the perpetual union style, the United States of America. Our guests tonight, first of all, Frank Stefan will be here as the co-host. Our guests tonight are Michael Ellis. I've known Michael for, I'm not sure, but it might be 20 years. Um, Michael came to our Citizens for Legal Reform meetings back in the mid-90s. And he he was uh, we would have different people in the audience open the meeting with a prayer, <laughs> and I had Michael. Michael didn't know him. Had him open the meeting a time or two with the prayers, and I began to realize that after about three times of Michael opening the meetings, those meetings always went better. They were always markedly improved when Michael opened the meeting with a prayer. So I recruited him for a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> an unpaid co-host, but things went from there, and we had a good. I had a great time. I believe Michael did too. Uh, we cert- we both certainly learned a lot. We're still learning a lot. All right, I am at least, and I assume Michael is also. But Michael Ellis is our first guest tonight, and with him is Bob McNeil. Mister McNeil is the founder and president of the American Citizen Party. Uh, he's a forensic accountant. Right. And we'll get into that, and we'll talk to talk to Mr. McNeil about what that means. He describes himself as an American revolutionary, an IRS nemesis, and an independent business consultant. Gentlemen, Michael and Bob, it's really good to have you here. I'm looking forward to this uh, this broadcast, and uh, let's say hi. Hi. 
Wow, this is Michael. Boy, good to hear your voice, man. How are you? Good, good. Um, Bob? Hello, Bob? Uh, maybe we've got a – do we have a – do we have a, a problem connecting with Bob? No. Frank? Sorry, I had the mute button on. It's my fault. I'm okay. I get, all right. I, get, I understand that. Hello, Bob. Why don't you tell us, just to begin with, what is a forensic accountant? Well, I, a forensic accountant, I, I, spent, I have a degree in accounting that I got back in 1975. Mm-hmm. and worked for a while, actually 40 years in the oil and gas industry. I only worked two years in accounting, uh, working on international ventures, but after two years, I asked for a transfer into the internal audit department of this large oil and gas company that I was working for, and then I spent the next you know, 10 or 15 years in the internal audit department of this organization. Now, a forensic accountant, uh, actually it's a, a, more of a forensic auditor, my job was to look at the books and records of this corporation and also our, our vendors, our clients, and all that, and determine if, uh, if internal accounting controls were being complied with, if contracts were being complied with, uh, if there was fraud involved. I was involved in investigating a number of, of fraud instances in my career. And, uh, and so I guess that's, I guess in a nutshell, that's kind of what a, friend, a forensic auditor slash accountant is. Just examining the books of, a, of an organization to, to just to ensure that everything is working as it was designed. Well, it implies that you must be the idea of being paying attention to detail. Yes, should not be foreign to you. Not at all. No. Yeah, I understand. I, when as soon as I saw the reference to forensic <laughs> accountant, I thought, now here's somebody who should be able to read with great insight and precision. Um, let's start here. Uh, I got. I have an article, or one of the documents submitted by Michael. We'll get to yours in a moment, Bob. Uh, Michael is filing a petition to the Supreme Court, right? And it deals with IRS record falsification. Uh, that is allegedly practiced routinely by the Internal Revenue System, according to Michael. And if I understand correctly, Bob. Um, the IRS is engaged in a kind of persistent fraud, particularly, particularly against non-filers. Uh, Michael, you wrote that not one judge you've encountered so far, and you've gone through, item, I'm not sure how many courts you've been through, you are now reaching the Supreme Court. Not one judge we've encountered so far has shown a shred of surprise that IRS commits crimes to enforce the income tax. They're ruling well, against you, but they're not surprised by your allegations. No, Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, we should probably give the folks a little bit of background. Go ahead. The IRS uh, has a particular problem. Uh, it turns out that everybody that excuse me, just a moment. Everybody that they call a non-filer, they used to call them tax protesters and anti-government constitutionalists and all sorts of names. But who they call non-filers, the IRS has a very difficult problem. And this arises because their software tracks constitutional limitations, and they have to avoid the software limitations by falsifying their internal records. Let me say that differently. People have a Fifth Amendment right to not have to file a return or any kind of information handed to the government that they could use against you in a court of law. Now, that kind of thing, you know, you can say that, but 
I'm really relying on a Supreme Court case in 1906 called Hale v. Hankel, which says things like an individual can stand on his constitutional rights as a citizen. He's entitled to carry on his own private business. He owes nothing, no duty to the state or to his neighbors to divulge his business or to open his doors to an investigation so far as it may tend to criminate him. He owes no duty to the state. And among his rights are a refusal to incriminate himself and the immunity of himself and his property from arrest or seizure, uh, except under one. All that's to say, this is a 1906, 1906 case, Hale versus Henkel. It's the Supreme Court of the United States, and it's never been overturned. So that gives us a, an idea that you have no duty to the state. You have, a, uh, in other words, at least in 1906, you had a Fifth Amendment right to not have to divulge your business. Open your doors to investigation. Now, today, things have changed, and they, um, the gents in the Supreme Court have come up with court cases, and in fact, two of them that are routinely cited. One of them is a court case against a, a gambler, and another one is a court case against a bootlegger. Now, how does that differ from people, Americans, average Americans, in the occupation of common right? Well, those types of holdings in the case against the bootlegger and the, uh, the other guy, those are definitely not typical American, shall we call, uh, occupations. People in America that had occupations of rights, teachers, farmers, whatever, they have a Fifth Amendment right against being compelled because they're not engaged in some regulated activity. At any rate, um, the lawyers like to dispute that. They like to say that, you know, these court cases, this Sullivan versus United States and United States versus Garner, uh, say that you don't, you have to file. At any rate, the rule, or shall we say, the software of the IRS internally perfectly supports our claim. So what you're implying is that if the software is clean, and constitutional. Yeah. You're implying that whatever fraud takes place, it's not built into the software. It must be a procedure that's being used by individual IRS agents. They are one way or another getting around the constitutional. They have learned how to defeat their own software. Is that true? That's exactly correct. I see whenever they're, in 1986, they created something called the, um, <clears throat> well, the Automated Substitute for Return Program. That began in 1986 when the computers were generally becoming more available. And when they created that, honestly, guys, it's an interesting process because the software experts have to sit and analyze every single place or person through whom those returns would go through to automate that program or the process. So when they did that, they finished the whole program, the whole process for the IRS, and created this program, but it turns out there is no procedure for processing what's called substitute for return for non-filers of the income tax. That's because it's truly voluntary. So to get around that... So we can't have a solution to non-filers <laughs> because it's legal not to file. That's what you're telling me. They didn't build a solution in the software because there's no obligation to file. Correct. And so that theory should be followed up. If it's true, my theory true, then there should be places where we find record fraud in the IRS records for you or a non-filer, a typical non-filer. So in about 2011, 
uh, I was blessed with a couple of uh, really good friends, one guy named Dave Miner, that gave me something called a document 6209. Now, that weird name document turns out to be the decoder manual for what's called the individual master files software that IRS keeps on each American for each year. So when you ask through a Freedom of Information Act request for your own info about you, the IRS keeps that individual master file for each year, they send it to you, but you can't read it because it's all gobbledygook numbers. It means nothing to you until you have the weirdly named decoder manual called a 62, document 6209. They gave you a decoder manual rather than a decoder ring. I just remember, I think it was Captain Video. You could get a decoder ring when I was a kid, and uh, I don't remember. That probably wouldn't apply. Um, All right, so you did get the decoder manual. Yes. You learned how to decode the IMF document. Is that true? That's correct. And so we can see, for example, as a good accountant, like Bob would tell you, in an accounting practice, you would have a code number assigned to each type of transaction. Is that not true, Bob? That is, that is true, yes. Okay. So in IRS lingo, every one of the transactions that they enter into your individual master file has to be accompanied by a three three-digit transaction number. Every single possible transaction that IRS can do in an individual master file is uh, available and it's decoded in the uh, 6209 manual. So, we look at the, the coded transactions, they call them, in your individual master file for a non-filer for any given year, and you compare it with what they actually send you in the mail, and guess what we have discovered. <laughs> There's a difference. That is correct. Internally, their files show reflect that they supposedly performed a substitute for return for a non-filer on particularly claimed dates, two of them. But they say that they did it at your request. The transaction, in other words, when decoded, shows that the IRS supposedly performed or executed, as they say, a substitute income tax return for non-filers on claimed dates when nothing whatsoever occurred except an inter-database entry. Computer fraud is what we're looking at. Bob, could you uh, care to or would you care to give a little bit more definition to what you've seen along that line for the, say, the SFR 150? Well, right. Uh, this is what we've noticed is that the, the dates that they say they, they, uh, they prepared to substitute for return, uh, what I did, uh, the, the date, the line items in the IMF uh, for each of these transaction codes to the right, uh, in, if you look at the IMF, typically contain what's called a document locator number, and they refer to that as a, as a DLN. So in the process of going through these records, uh, I sent in a, a Freedom of Information Act request and asked for copies of all the documents that were in my IMF that were assigned to DLM. When I asked for copies of the substitute for return based on a DLM, I sent that and received a a response back from the IRS Disclosure Office that there were no documents responsive to my request. 
How did they come to believe that there was such a thing as a substitute for return if Here's what you're telling us now. is correct and there isn't one? Here's how it happens. There's people out there that make a request for IRS to execute a substitute for return on their behalf. So if you don't have a, you know, a lot of money's coming in and you're not making a lot of deductions, you can actually, as they call it, elect for IRS to execute a substitute return for you. So the software was created to allow the process, those types of elections. There is a procedure created, in other words, for people who want to elect IRS to do a substitute for return for them. But in non-filer cases, no request is made, but the IRS uses that procedure created for legitimate purposes to process requests for IRS to do a return. They use that unlawfully, and that's the procedure. You're exactly right. They're not, there is no cooked procedure. It's that they're misusing lawfully created procedures. I, or, get it? I've got a question about the, the request. This is Frank. Hi, Frank. So is it the only way that they're actually authorized by law is when you request this? Well, you can elect it. Okay, elect, request, whatever, you know, but if I don't, and if they can't show that somebody did or I did, right. you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this, okay, so where's the request, and uh, oh, yeah, where's the actual, you know, the thing? So they have nothing, and they just move on. That's correct. See, because nobody knows how to decode the software, or decode, shall we say, the IMF. They don't know that those dates and that document locator number, when you go for it, there's nothing there. There was nothing that occurred on those dates. And what happens, Frank, is they get around that by instead of presenting in any court case against a quote-unquote willful failure to file person, they present certifications by a live witness of the individual master file. So it'll be a certification called uh, whatever the form number is. There's several different versions, the 23C, Rax, 006, and so forth. But they will present this. This person will walk into court as a live witness and say, here, Your Honor, is a uh, self-authenticating certificate that tells you that there was a substitute return done on a certain date, and they never present. In fact, the Attorney General has instructed in his criminal tax manual his prosecutors to never use individual master file records in court cases. Hmm. And you know why? Because if they did, it would produce the exculpatory, dispositive, case-ending information if an attorney had the decoder manual nope. to say, well, tell me, what, what happened right here? Show me the substitute for return that happened on this date. Well, now, I, I, don't, I get the idea that the prosecutor, the attorney general, would say, look, I don't want you guys using this. Don't bring this in here. But what about, you know, I mean, you can get a Freedom of Information Act. You can get the master file. Can you enter it into the court yourself and say, hey, look at here? Typically, you're going to get, like, in the case that's currently pending out in California, the attorney has tried to do that. Here's a, it was a slightly attenuated case. Dr. Bill Bailey is being prosecuted for tax evasion. His attorneys were notified of this problem, right? They, they sort of understood it. They tried to, what happened was, in his case, uh, they got that, it's called a 
a substitute for return package in the mail. IRS cooks up these packages, in other words, that are called uh, substitutes for return, so they say, but they're never on the date shown in the uh, individual master file record. And they're an agglomeration of documents that are extremely deceitful. At any rate, you get one of those, they're called a ticket to tax court. Bill Bailey got a ticket to tax court, and he went, and the judge rendered a judgment against him and said, you should know better than to not file. The government's going to file one for you if you don't. So Bill filed, but he filed some returns that he claimed he didn't know anything. The government came after him. Bill did not know that they had falsified his underlying IMF records until way later. So his attorneys in this case going on said, hey, Your Honor, they, they, they're prosecuting him for these returns he filed based on the fraud that was perpetrated in the tax court that showed the IRS had supposedly done a substitute for return when they never do them. Well, the judge in this case in Southern California that's going on right now for Bill Bailey said, that's irrelevant. We can't take any of that. We don't want to hear anything about the tax court. You'll have to go to the tax court to try to get that fixed. Let's just move on with the returns and prosecute for that. So do you see the long-winded answer is you can attempt to do that. And if you know your stuff, you'll be able to get it in. But you know how attorneys typically are a little bit leery of attempting to confront the beast. Oh, yeah. Is there any way to file a counterclaim in this situation? Well, <clears throat> if you're Are you trapped way. just being a defendant, or can you file a counterclaim and allege some sort of fraud where you say, huh, these people are committing fraud because they don't have a substitute for, re for return? And instead of just defending us, uh, they, it does, they don't have it, so the, uh, this important link in the prosecution's chain is broken, they can't proceed. Not just be a defendant, but can you sue them for fraud? Yes, and that's where I would go. This is just me talking, right? That's the kind of thing I would do. And Bill is considering doing that because they defrauded him, yeah. both in the tax court, in the IMS, and in their criminal trial that they're doing now because they're not allowing him to place into evidence the, what's called dispositive, meaning case-ending, exculpatory evidence of IRS record fraud. Now, here's critical to understand this, guys. The fact that the IRS has been caught falsifying their record is extremely important. Here's the reason why. The government, Congress, has no authority to uh, authorize the commission of any crimes. IRS is committing crimes in their internal records to make it look like they do returns when they don't. The fact that IRS commits crimes in its records to enforce the, I, the income tax tells you Congress did not impose any duty upon a non-filer. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. It's got to be voluntary. It is totally voluntary because yeah. Congress can authorize crimes and IRS commits crimes to enforce the law. That means so, it's totally voluntary. When, and when they say, we are filing a return on your behalf, mm -hmm. if I'm understanding you correctly, you're claiming that the law requires them to do so at your request. So would you please file a return on my on my behalf? And say, well, we're pretty busy, but we'll try to make time for it. Yeah, we can take care. We'll file one at your request. They're falsifying they're falsifying the fact that you have allegedly consented to be That's taxed. Right. That is exactly correct. And then, by the way, their external-facing certifications contradict their internal
record. The internal records make it look like you requested them to do what. External yep. certifications, though, say they did this under the authority of 6020B, as though they had authority to do one. But, guys, that's a whole subject that's really interesting. We might want to take that after a break, but it's a very interesting problem that they have making substitutes for returns in cases by force. They don't have any authority in income tax to do that. Well, this is then who is liable? All right. They don't have any authority. Your complaint is not exactly with the government, per se. You're going after private, or at least in theory, are you going after private individuals employed by the Internal Revenue Service? Is the, Revenue, is the IRS something other than a real government agency? Who's well, we liable are, for the fraud? We are assuming that the IRS is an agency. I'm not going to go into that. What I'm going to leave you with or get to this thought is that the person that's doing the actual entry, coding entries to make it look like a substitute for return is done when one isn't. The person that then creates certifications for public consumption that are absolutely false and fraudulent that say a substitute return was done on a date that it wasn't. These people don't know what they're doing. Those are the minions. They just follow what the computer software tells them to do, and the boss says, do this, do this, do that. The person that figured out how to misuse the computer software process created when somebody elects for IRS to do a substitute for that person that's an IT kind of director and the highest-ranking attorney who made that decision to go ahead and misuse that procedure, those are the guys that we're after because they committed the crime. The rest of the people are just tools. All right, I get that, because I, and I expect that's probably true, because this could, I would be very much surprised if what you're talking about was widely known and understood in the IRS. If the rank and file understood this, yeah. somebody would blow the whistle. This has got to be information that's closely contained and controlled in the IRS, and only a relative handful of people should know what's really going on here. Absolutely. Now, when you go look at their published documentation that discusses 6020A authority to do substitutes for return, it turns out that it's completely limited to three different types of taxes that they can do substitute returns on. One is called employment. One is called what? Tax. Employment taxes. Okay. And excise taxes. And in partnership matters, those are the only three areas that IRS has consistently said there's 6020B authority to do substitutes for return. They've literally published it three different places saying that they don't have any authority in income tax areas to do a substitute for return. Let me say that differently. Substitutes for return are they're authorized in their, let's call their internal revenue manual, in their revenue officer's handbook, and in the Privacy Information Act announcement regarding 6020B, those all three state that their authority to do substance for return are limited to only three types of taxes, excise, employment, and partnership. The word individual income tax never meets the authority of 6020B. Why do you suppose that is? Again, confirmation. It's voluntary. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So so they don't have any thing to show that 
you actually requested them to do this. They don't have the actual return, and they don't have the authority to do this for the income tax. Directly, correct. Okay, so this is kind of piling up on them. That's correct. Now that's what we are are pursuing in the court case, that the the internal documentation of the IRS that contradicts their public-facing certifications even, all of which contradicts their uh, internal revenue manual, their revenue officer's handbook, and so forth, we have pounded on this because we call this proof of not just illegal acts. This is worth knowing. Illegal acts versus criminal acts is a huge difference, it turns out, in the law. Illegal acts that IRS does, you know, like somebody exceeds their authority and punches a button and they make it look like a substitute for return was done on one day when it wasn't. Well, that's, they don't know any better. And but, it could be an accident, for example, could be illegal. It's a function of conduct, but it's not a function of intent. If we right. go to criminal, what do we right. see then? Precisely. So it's an unauthorized act. And the courts have made it clear that over the century or so of this income tax, that anything to do with collection, you can't stop them if, with, if it's just a complaint that the IRS guy is doing something illegal. Right? But it turns out that that thing about the distinction being criminal, a criminal act, Congress has no authority to either authorize the performance of or to shield it by the enactment of the Anti-Injunction Act. Let me say that a little differently. The Anti-Injunction Act was passed by Congress to prevent any kind of district court cases during the middle of the assessment or collection of the United States income tax. Why that was, don't get into too much, but basically it was just to keep the people from accessing courts to try to screw up the collection of this very important lifeblood, so they call it, right? I got it. I understand what you're saying. What you're saying is if someone owed a lot of money to the government, even if it was a legitimate debt, all they'd have to do is file one of these cases, and they could tangle the whole thing up in court for several years and never have to pay a dime while the case was pending in court. So during the Civil War, when this was first enacted, by the way, the history of the income tax is just fascinating. It was passed, by the way, to just attack. 1% 1% of the people at 2% of their earnings, and only those people that were making money on interest, on stocks, people that didn't actually have to work for a living. At any rate, the Anti-Injunction Act was passed to prevent anybody from getting the courts to tangle, as you call it, up the collection process, right? But Congress doesn't have any authority to shield the commission of crime. So we have raised the issue, because the courts are always low, they always say that they're impotent. We can't do anything. The Anti-Injunction Act takes jurisdiction from us. We have made the issue that the Congress doesn't have any power to strip the judiciary through the Anti-Injunction Act of power to hear cases that Americans are raising that the IRS has committed crimes. Congress has no power to strip that person that's being damaged of their right to access courts to stop criminal acts by the IRS. Regardless of whether it's the lower minions, they, they're not the criminals. It's somebody inside IRS is criminally manipulating their processes, their software, to produce outcomes that are favoring the IRS. So, that all that to say, Congress doesn't have any power to stop it. The Anti-Injunction Act is utterly irrelevant. 
And that's where the courts are now having trouble because they don't want to take jurisdiction of this opposite. Well, one thing that I, I this anti-injunction act, I mean, uh, isn't taking away your ability to go to court kind of taking away due process? And what did they substitute with it? Is it a uh, uh, an administrative sort of hearing that they've given you rather than access to the courts? Yeah, what they try to do is first they, they make you go through the tax court. They try to make you go through the tax court. The tax court turns out to be an administrative court, which is to say they can't take on any subject of constitutional import. Tax courts are just there to find out how much you owe and make a judgment against you. So the people don't know that. They think they can go and complain about IRS problems, and they always come out with a burden on their back of, you owe this much. So that's the procedure, and then if you wanted to, you can go complain about that to a, a circuit court of appeal and try to get, you know, something changed. But that whole long, drawn-out headache is really, uh, we are bypassing that for the reasons it's stated. Congress never made any kind of a law and could not make one that would shield IRS crimes. From, and you stripped you of your right to access court to stop it. Now, now with with an administrative, I mean, so basically, yeah, they have. They've taken away your judicial access to the courts and and said, no, what you have is this administrative thing. That's right. What if I don't accept that and say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want administrative anything. I want want my rights of judiciary, uh, you know, determination. Judicial review, you're right. That's right. So that's exactly what we're doing, Frank, is we're making sure that the, the guys were pushing it right into their faces. That this is not, we're not asking to stop an assessment or collection activity. We're asking to stop a crime, a sequence, a layered sequence of fraud that the IRS uses to prosecute non-filers. Now, listen, if it is stopped with regard to non-filers, again, I should go back to this just so you know, the implications of the fact the IRS falsifies its records is since Congress cannot authorize the commission of crime in any enforcement by law officer, that criminal procedure IRS uses shows you the income tax is voluntary. Now, I, this might be an off-topic off, off kind of question, but would, would there be any way to access the RICO lawsuits? Uh, because this certainly seems pretty organized crime. It is. It is, and it's exactly correct. It's passed for that. Rico's kind of complicated. You have certain things that you have to meet, and one of those, uh, I think, their elements is not possible to meet under for us little people. Huh. But it is an organized racket. It is a, the biggest uh, fraud ever perpetrated in the history of the world on a free people. And it is now, the implication here is that if your suit were to prevail in court... Mm-hmm. The IRS would be done going after non-filers. Well, the implication. Or the law would have to be changed. And what about the non-filers who've been prosecuted in the past, and they find out, wait a second, this was for, based on fraud. Oh my! Now the, the damage that's been done to the American people is just is uncountable. How can you put people that have been in prison for years? How can you make it right? I agree with that. Let me ask you this. If people in the IRS 
are perpetrating a fraud against the American taxpayer. Who profits from this? Does all the profit, does all the money that they bring in to the non, from the non-filers, does all of that go to the government? Or is the IRS siphoning off some, or is a small cadre siphoning off some for themselves? Well, that's a subject that you can philosophize on. I do not know and have Bob and I have never tracked it to find out what the, the actual usage of the money is, but something tells me that it's probably uh, not what we would ever have thought. We knew the truth of where the stuff goes, where the tax money goes. That's probably true. And one of the one of the thoughts that's crossed my mind, getting a lot of static off of someone, and it's not me. Um, somebody's wiggling one of their wires or whatever, or at least uh, uh, Frank says he's got to try to reconnect. I'm not sure. Reconnect with who, Frank? Bob. Bob? Okay. Yeah. Whatever you got to do. Um, you got to reconnect with Michael and Bob. All um, right. Then why don't you do that right now, and I will sing. A lot of people, I get a lot of requests for me singing songs on this program. And so uh, I, have a, I have a new song for you people. <laughs> paper dollars, paper dollars, oh, how real those dollars seem to be. But they're only counterfeit currency. Now, I haven't worked out the next line on that yet. Like, da, 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 da. I haven't worked that out yet. But I think that's actually pretty good. Paper dollars. Um, <laughs> uh, other than that, I don't think I have any more songs. Um, where we're going with this is Michael Ellis. Again, you can tell. I know how complex this is to listen to this program. And it's not something that will simply sink into your mind. Um, particularly with all the details we're going into. But the fundamentals are this. If you are a non-filer, Michael's research indicates that they need a substitute for return in order to proceed against you. And in order to create a substitute for return, they have to either have a return from you in the first place, which they can't have if you're a non-filer, at least not a current one. You don't have a current one if you're a non-filer. Or they must otherwise have evidence that you have consented to, and, literate, and not just consented to, but asked for the IRS to produce a return on your behalf. Now, if you haven't made that request, you haven't requested that the IRS create a substitute for return, you didn't file in a return, and you haven't asked the IRS, will you pretty please, pretty please, will you f create a substitute for return for me? Um, if neither one are there, then apparently there is a computer program that takes you from step one to step two to step three to step four, however far you have to sequence through the computer program in order to reach the conclusion that you need to go to tax court. If they don't have a substitute for return, and according to uh, Bob McNeil, he said when he asked for one, they told him they, there is no document that conforms to his request. He asked for one under FOIA. They couldn't produce one. 
The implication is that an important link in the chain that leads from link number one to two to three to five to 50 to 100 that finally gets to a point you need to go to court, you need to be dragged into court. There's a link in that chain called the substitute for return, and they don't actually have that link. Which means if this evidence is correct, and if it's properly presented in court, in theory, it should stop the prosecution. The chain is broken by the by the failure to produce the link uh, for the for the substitute for return. And I understand that Michael is back. Am I yes, am I expressing this correctly, Michael? Yes, that's exactly right. So that's what we're doing is pointing out that it's not only just a, a missing link; it's actually a criminal act. Well, I get that. Why is why isn't the the link there? Yes. That's the question. Is this oversight, mistake, or is it a criminal pattern? And well, it took out a long time to figure it out because what we're looking for is not what is there, but what is not there. Yeah. Very yeah. difficult to figure out because IRS uses all sorts of subterfuge to make it look like a substitute for return was done. But I'll tell you, it's critical, as a Bob can attest, the word substitute for return leaves out a real important phrase, substitute income tax return. Yeah, never kind of return. return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't specify is this a return for excise taxes, for employment taxes, or for partnership taxes. They just say substitute for return. Everyone knows that a 1040 is a return. Everyone, therefore, presumes that they, can, they must mean a substitute for a 1040 return. Right. So the people that actually do them, the we're going to call them nicely, minions that do the quote-unquote substitute for return packages, they'll slap on top of it. There are five documents attached to this little package deal. It's quite interesting to analyze it. But the top one is a certification form, and it says that I am duly authorized by Treasury Delegation Order 182, now it's 5-2, to do substitute for return. This is a valid return. The problem is they never said, and no one will ever even swear to it, that they did a valid substitute income tax return. Meaning, they are extending illegally, in other words, unauthorized, they're uh, processing these things in the income tax arena when they're only authorized to do substitutes returns in excise, employment, and partnership taxes. So that's where they get just, it's very slight of hand, you have to read closely. And what really set me on this, guys, though, what first got my attention was the underlying document that comes with that in that SFR package ticket to tax court, they call it. The next document is called out. It's numbered 4549, and it's called an income tax examination change form. And on that form, they do all of their calculations, right? How much you owe, how much you should have deducted or could have deducted, all that stuff that you owe, principal interest and all that. But when I read that form, when they first started sending me that form, it was 10 years ago, and I started looking at it. And I said to myself, they call me a non-filer, yet this document says that this is an income tax examination change form. So I said back to the guy that sent me this deal, I said, what are you changing? Uh-huh. He, went, he went silent. Never responded and disappeared. Closed the case, went away. Well, now I know to 
10 years later, I figured out why he went away. It's because there's nothing in the Internal Revenue file that's the original return that he could have been changing. There's nothing there except an input in their database between actually two databases they have to make it look like a substitute for return was done on a certain claim date when nothing was done whatsoever. Then they filed this other document. Here's where it gets really cool. At the end, when they try to enter into their records, the data computed on that income tax examination change form, they use a transaction numbered 300. That transaction, when decoded, it tells you that it's only for use in cases where a return has already been filed. So the documents, they stick together as a substitute for return package. They internally treat it as an addition to tax, not as a substitute for return. And do they so, send this package through the mail to you? Yes, it's mail fraud on top of all the yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is sitting. falsified. Absolutely. Have you identified the specific IRS agents that you think are responsible in your particular case? And what I mean by that, I would expect you got some clue to who they might be, but are they using their real names? Or do we hear stories that they routinely use pseudonyms, yeah. right? a false name. The guys that are doing the income tax examination changes, yep. those, those fellas, they use all sorts of pseudonyms, right? But they're not really doing any, they don't even know what they're doing. You get into it with them, and they just sort of flubber, flubber, and just leave. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> right. I've heard like that I, the, average, the average IRS agent only lasts about nine months. Now, that was know, maybe a decade ago. I don't know that's still true today, but they were short-term they didn't have. They had a high rate of turnover in the Internal Revenue Service. Whether that's true today, I don't know. But I would bet it's still com- relatively high. When we did How long did it take you to get up to speed on understanding the IRS laws? Oh my gosh! I, I still, I actually, I don't claim to be any expert on their laws. Yeah, I get that. But even to reach the level you've achieved, how long did you study? Oh, it's been years. Actually, years. So. Um, yeah, I understand that, and probably not two or three years. Oh, no. When, I come, when we come back from break, I want to make sure. We're not going to have a break. Well, we can okay. take one at the top of the hour. Uh, right. Frank, Frank you can play some music at the top of the hour, and we'll take a brief break, and people can run off to the uh, Thunderbox or wherever they need to go to relieve themselves, and then we'll get back started a minute or two after the top of the hour. Um, but still, the point I'm trying to make <clears throat> is that the average IRS agent up there can't possibly devote the kind of time that's required to really begin to get an idea what's going on with income taxes. They don't, they give, they tell you, they put you through, who knows, a two week course. I'm only guessing do this, that, if they do this, there's, they're giving you, you know, just, if you see a, you do B, uh, a simplified course it can only give a superficial understanding of the Internal Revenue Code. They've got to be oh, as bewildered exactly right. as most taxpayers. Yeah, and what's the, the interesting deal, Al, is, is that this goes along, this scam that they're perpetrating goes along with a subtle misunderstanding in all of Americans' brains. We do not know, because we have been <clears throat> public schooled, 
quote unquote what the founders called co equal sovereigns. Yeah. They have no idea what their rights are, and so they all think of themselves as the British do, as subjects. Yep. So they think the government can willy nilly pass any law and they're required to obey it. The problem is when you get into the guts of the IRS, turns out they actually do have software and procedures that honor the Constitution. They just have to manipulate it to get around them, and that's criminal. Yeah, I understand. It's criminal, it's fraud, it's wicked. Um, I don't know if it's treason. Oh, absolutely. To the Constitution, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, uh, What you're you're into here, Michael, one of the things that's crossed my mind, I have understood in the past, I've heard reports, rumors, that once in a while the Supreme Court will catch wind of a case that's down at a lower court that deals with a subject that they want to hear at the Supreme Court level. And they will therefore, according to rumor and perhaps just myth, they will manipulate the lower courts to make sure that that case keeps on coming up through the appellate courts until it finally reaches the Supreme Court so they can make the judgment they want to make. For political reasons, I think it would be it would be hard to believe that they were doing that in your case, but on the other hand, wouldn't they have been better off if they're really trying to defend the IRS? Wouldn't they have been better off just to say, just get get him out of here? I don't want to talk to Michael and all this anymore. Get him out of here. Don't any of you bring him back. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I mean. This thing could have been this, this thing could have been burnt out back. How many how many levels have you gone through so far? Well, here's, I got to tell you, when we get back, I want to tell you that there's all of these court cases are now at the district level other than my first one. And my first one was filed back in about 2013. It went to the uh, Court of Appeals. And I should tell you exactly what happened at each layer because it's fascinating. And then what's happening now with all these guys filing these lawsuits at the District of Columbia District Court is making an intolerable stress across these judges because every case has been assigned to a different judge. Yeah. So i got to tell you what's going on is so cool, and I think it might have some really interesting uh, uh, outcomes. But um, <clears throat> let's go through that, and I can explain it to you when we have a little bit more time afterwards, after the break. Well, one of the things about this is when you assign cases to a multitude of judges, yes. every judge that shows up, when it's his turn to take the case, he hasn't read the case file. He doesn't know what's happened in the previous courts. All he knows is he's got this. And I've seen this happen in Texas. I don't know what goes on in the federal courts. But the judge says he's taking this case. I think the term was under advisement. And he says, I haven't read this yet, but I'm going to have to read through this. And we're going to hold off on the decision until I've read through this. But we've got every one of these judges starts from square one. And they are essentially reinventing the wheel and reinventing the wheel. And uh, each judge is excused from knowing what the previous courts have done unless, that, unless there's evidence of what they've done in the record that he's, that he's bound to read and understand. Um, it's, so it's strikes, exactly they want judges ignorant, it. essentially. They want plausible deniability for the judges. They want <laughs> ignorance for the judges, something so that's what, we have, that's what we have defeated. We are now to the stage where each court case that gets filed 
is telling the new judge what's been going on in all the other cases and the errors that have been committed. It's just a fascinating deal to watch because they're now aware in the original complaints of how everybody else is treating the case or has treated them so far. So we could give you the details. I think you'll see it's a really cool strategy that I believe God has given to us to make this not just go away, but keep it in front of their faces until someone with integrity steps up to the plate and says, what are you doing, IRS? Now, that'll be, will that take a minor miracle? Well, to get all of these judges to lie in the same pattern uh, to falsify stuff, it's not going to be possible. So, and by the way, if they all do, if, if they actually do collude and they all do the same thing that I want to tell you about the first judge did, if they all do that, then that is no longer a coincidence. It's no longer an accident. But it is judicial entry on the side of the fraud. So it's called ratification. And that's you tried. I don't know if you remember. I'm trying to think of his name right now. He wrote under the name of Valiant Liberty. Uh, Tom Gibson. Do you remember his name? Mm, sort of. How do I know? Well, he was active in the Patriot community. But one of the things he did is he, he had some success by taking his cases to his congressional representative, his congressman. And his congressman, when he got involved in this thing, he'd contact the IRS or whoever needed to be contacted. And he'd say, wait a second, what the heck are you doing? And based on the congressman's involvement, Tom was winning his cases. Now, Tom wasn't rich or influential, but he was intelligent, and he was, you know, he, he wasn't afraid of anybody as near as I ever saw. I, um, I'm just curious if that's something you'd heard about, if it was something you might have considered. Well, actually did tried to go to a congressman and spoke to the congressman right here in uh, the southern part of Dallas. <clears throat> and his right-hand person that took a look at this was absolutely unable to comprehend it. Well, I get that. That's part of the problem that you face. Yeah. You have uncovered a scheme that is so complex and bizarre that right. it's very difficult I mean, you're going to have to be a brilliant communicator, and I know that you are, Michael, but even so, you've got your work cut out for you to oh, yeah. cause people to understand what you're talking about. We'll talk more about Michael's need uh, to be able to explain this in ways that the, the jury potentially or congressman or whoever can understand. Um, we'll talk more in a moment. We're just going to take a two-, three-minute break. Uh, a little music, and we will be back with Michael Ellis and Bob McNeil if the connection has been reestablished. I'm not sure if Bob is back here or not. Um, for the second half of the American Independence Hours, please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. is we have lost Bob McNeil, whatever was the, uh, apparently the cause for the static we heard in the, in the first half of the program, the first hour, a static involved Mr. McNeil's uh, connection. Actually, and it's kind of weird uh, because... The, I was busting out at the same time. The static was, I think, one of the phones here. Because one of I, your phones. Yeah, because I reconnected uh, with Michael on another line, and it, it doesn't seem to be staticking anymore. But uh, I've tried Bob on a different line with both Skype and uh, phone. And and I'm, just, phones. I'm just not getting, uh, and, and his cell phone, you know. And it's ringing. I mean, you know, it's getting through. It's just not, nobody's picking up. I've uh, got a voicemail. Well, it was strange because at the same time, my Skype yeah. failed on me. I tried to dial in. Probably three, four times, because the program had come up and was apparently functional. I tried to dial in three, four times after I was disconnected, and every time, as soon as I tried to dial in, program would go down. I'm just gonna bring it back up, start it up again, call in again. Goes out, bang, just popped in, went down. You had me getting scared over here. I thought maybe Texas got nuked or something. Well, I didn't. Uh, they're, they're not gonna nuke Texas. Um, there's no point to that. Yeah, Michael. Okay, Michael is back. Uh, apparently, Bob, we've apparently lost Bob. We'll try to connect, connect with him a couple more times during the program. Um, I was hoping to get to Bob again as a forensic accountant. He should have some good insights we would like to hear about. But let me see if I can summarize what we've talked about so far. Michael is involved in a dispute litigation with the Internal Revenue Service. Michael Ellis is our guest. Michael is litigating with the Internal Revenue Service. Michael has taken his case now to the Supreme Court, or he's on the verge of taking it to the Supreme Court. I don't know if the case has been actually filed into the Supreme Court yet, or, or that's something that will happen in the next several weeks. Right. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. But in any case, Michael is up near and near the uh, Supreme Court level. And his argument against the Internal Revenue Service, as I'm understanding it, is this. They have computers with a series of steps in them that essentially take us from step number one, they've got your name and address, and they assume you're going to pay income taxes, and they go to step two and step three and step four. And if it turns out you haven't filed to 1040, then... There is a proviso to file a substitute for return, but according to Michael, these substitute returns are only for 
excise taxes, employment taxes, and partnership taxes. There's no substitute for return for a 1040. And they can't, the government can't create a return on your behalf. They can't create that substitute for return unless you have either filed a 10, well, even then they probably, they can't, it, the, the whole substitute for return idea is irrelevant unless you are obligated to pay an excise tax, employment tax, or a partnership tax. Right. So they are falsifying the idea that there's a substitute for return for your tax for your tax return, for your 1040, if you are a non-filer. You didn't file one, they're going to say, well, we created one for you. And they say, we did it because oh, you submitted a return and we improved it, or you expressly asked, would you please create a return for me? And in most cases of non-filers, that doesn't happen. Turns out they have some very interesting <clears throat> internal documentation that states something I gotta just tell you about. There was an internal memo in 1998 that we discovered that stated specifically that your signature on your 1040 is very important to them yeah. Yeah. because it connects your liability to their statutory authority to summarily assess. Those words mean something. Your liability is not, if you don't swear under penalty of perjury, yeah. that you owe an amount, they have no authority to do it for you. You have to connect their statutory authority to look at your return and assess whether it was correct or not to determine whether it was right or not. But if you don't file a return, you have short-circuited their game. They have nothing that would connect your so-called liability. Nothing that will legally, nothing that will lawfully connect you, but what you're right. alleging and what you've discovered and what you're alleging in your case, nevertheless, they have adopted some sort of a, a fraudulent process Look where they around. can bypass the computer. In theory, if you won't file, they're done. They should just say, oh, well, <laughs> he's not going to file, so we just forget that one. Let's move on to the next one. But they said, no, we're not. We're going to get this guy and make him file, or we're going to get him for not filing if we have to cook the books, essentially. And we will create a substitute in return, even though we have no authority to do so. So now you see their problem. Yeah, I do. A non-filer would take some sort of a weirdo, like a a non-filer. I'm not going to say I'm a (laughs) non-filer. I don't want to help them out. Their records are falsified to show that I'm a non-filer, who filed a return so that they can then go ahead and change it. You see, let's make this clear. Whenever a return is filed, that gives them the authority to check it and check it and make sure it's correct. So they do have authority when you file a return to ensure that it's absolutely accurate. I have no problem with that. Is the return a contract? Huh? Do you regard the return as a contract? You're signing it. You've said the signature is essentially what's creating your liability. Do you regard the return as a contract, or do you see it as a pledge? Um, I do not know the distinction. I would definitely say it's a contract. A contract requires two people. There's Uh got to be a meeting of the minds to create a contract. But it's entirely possible for me to sign a pledge, and I could call PBS and pledge to donate $100 on their next pledge drive. If I don't send the $100 and they don't receive in the next couple of weeks, they'll lean on me. 
and they have legal right to come after me for the $100, and in some instances they do. It is a single signature document. There's no meeting of the minds, one signature that, in my opinion, creates a pledge rather than a contract. Well, so if you don't know, sign, I, they don't have a contract, and they don't even have a pledge. Right. Well, but my point is, is that uh, regardless of what they, you know, what that somebody up at the top thinks, they have to have your signature. When they don't have your signature, they have to falsify their records to make it look like they did a substitute for return, even though they don't have any authority to do one. That little subject right there, the fact that I, it's not me that's claiming it, guys. So let me just give you the specifics. In their internal revenue manual, Section 5.1.11.6.7. Let me say that again. 5.1.11.6.7. Go look it up. Do a little Google search on that, and you'll find out. It brings you to a section that lists exactly the types of returns they have authority to substitute for returns on, and exactly the form numbers. The 10 form numbers are only forms dealing with, predictably, excise, employment, and partnership taxes. Not only do they say that in their internal revenue manual, but their revenue officer's handbook, we have a copy of a 20-year-old version or 30-year-old version of that revenue officer's handbook that expressly informs you of the same thing, that their authority to substitute for return is limited to employment, excise, and partnership taxes, and for non-filers of income tax, they're supposed to do a, return, a referral of the case to examination. Let me, let, me, let, me take this to, let me take this to Bob McNeil for a moment. Um, Bob, is, he's been here waiting patiently, and let me, uh, let's, let's bring him in and see what he thinks about the presentation so far. And let me ask, Bob, um, in your, one of your documents, your declaration, your affidavit, yes. you list the same arguments, or much the same arguments as Michael is presenting right now. Um, you have four pages of point by point by point, and your conclusion is that the IRS, when they create this substitute for return, they are attempting to enforce an exaction of income, of money, I'm not sure how you want, but as opposed to a tax, is this exaction, if I'm pronouncing this property, does this correspond to a presumption that they're dealing with an excise uh, rather than well, an I income tax? So. Uh, I think so, but the exaction in the guise of a tax is, is actually, Michael, you can correct me on this, is actually from a court case. Is that correct, Michael? Oh, yes. It's a very famous one. Yeah. You know, so... So that's a okay. term that has been used and is understood that it yeah. is different from a tax. It is an exaction of money from an individual in the, in the guise of a tax. So that's really, the, in a nutshell, the whole thing is that you're a fraud and a sham. And, uh, and uh, you know. That, what has surprised you the most, Bob? Excuse How me? long have you been chasing this for one thing? How long have you been fighting with the IRS? Let's start there. Oh, okay, well, uh I last filed a tax return in 1999. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, okay. I, you get older, these things skip your mind. I understand. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, no, actually, it's because I, I, I asked a simple question of the IRS. You know, what, tax, what, what section of the code makes me liable for the tax? And in more than 15 years of asking that question, they've never answered it. Yep. And the only thing that I've gotten back, because I asked the question in, in the form of a, 
information act request as well and what i got back from the disclosure office is they couldn't quote a section of the u.s code but she did refer to the u.s constitution and specifically the 16th amendment that makes us liable for the income tax so that's what the irs and the federal government believes is their authority for the income tax when there is no u.s code section that makes us liable so that, I think that's Go ahead. Well, I, I think that's that's one of the biggest conclusions that I've reached. And, but to continue, uh, they caught up with me in, in uh, 2005 after I hadn't filed in a while, and they came after me for came after me for 2002, only a single tax year, and went through the same process. I, I had not been introduced to Michael. Uh, in fact, I didn't meet Michael until, until 2014. So. I was learning along the way and picking up pieces of information here and there, and uh, and so I received the same types of, of documents that Michael has talked about throughout the presentation. These uh, SFR packages, because they they prepared a substitute. Well, they they said they prepared a substitute for, for return for me on my behalf, but now I know that they never did. But not being as knowledgeable and educated now uh, then as I am now, I uh, I didn't know what to do with that. So I went through the process of going through tax court, filed a petition, uh, went through that and discovered through talking to other people, Bob, you never, never want to go to tax court. That's no, that's not the venue for any American to go and, and receive any sort of justice. Uh, and so... So I, I filed a motion to dismiss. The, I got the case dismissed out of tax court, but this was, this was my first indication that there was something had gone awry, and that is the, the, the tax court judge dismissed my case and in the same court order said to me that the law requires me to rule in favor of the IRS, and so I am entering a judgment here for $25,000 against you for taxes you owe for 2002. So that's what transpired. How that. much were they actually trying to get out of you for 2002? What did they claim your liability was? Well, they said I owed them $25,000 in taxes okay. based on X number of dollars of quote-unquote income. Uh, now, that has since, since grown with in interest and penalties and those kinds of things. It's probably well in thirty-five dollars or $40,000 now. But, but that continued. Uh, and that it continued on through 2011, 12, I think, is the last tax year that they, they sent me a letter about. Now, uh, I have liens and levies against me for over $300,000 for 11 tax years. And, uh, and so I just write them back. They, when they send me a letter, I write them back. I don't, I don't throw it in the trash. I, I answer the letter. I answer them directly. I answer them uh, succinctly. And uh, so I... Uh, what you may not know is I have a website where I have documented all of these, these letters are all out there. And I have over 300 documents on my website that anybody can go and read and, and see this entire process unfold over the last, you know, I've, I've created the, the website in 2007. So over the last you know, eight years now or more. So we've got a real case here. We've got a history that could be studied if anyone wanted to. Oh, yeah. Now, I have a, at what I have a point... You've been doing. You've been putting these documents up since 2007. So you've got, in theory, at least eight, maybe nine years of documents. Oh yeah, yeah. At what point, or was there a point, where you began to realize you'd been making a mistake for the first year, two years, five years, 
and all of a sudden you saw a new insight, and you say, holy cow, this is the way it works. Is there a point like that in your, in your list of documents where all of a sudden your level of understanding was suddenly it jumped up dramatically higher than what it had been in the past? Uh, no, not through my documents. That happened when I met Michael. All right. Yeah. Then Michael is the fundamental source of the information on the substitute for return, the missing substitute for return. True? Yeah, he is to me. And uh, he actually contacted me as, as a result, I think, of either seeing my website or hearing about it or something. I said, hey, Bob, I can see you've been fighting this battle for a while. I, I have some information here. Would you like to learn about it? So he sent it to me. I actually met Michael. I, I traveled uh, about two hours. I was living in Houston at the time. I traveled about two hours north. And we, Michael will remember this. We first met in person when we attended a face-to-face -face meeting with a uh, an agent from the Treasury Inspector General's office. And it was our first. It was our first attempt. Michael's first attempt to present this this information of fraud to somebody in authority that could do something about it. And, uh, and we, gave, we met with this agent, and I'll tell you, this guy was hostile to any information and any, I guess, any inkling of anybody who didn't comply with the law or, or what they said the law was. So we presented, we attempted to present the information to him. He wasn't interested. In fact, we ended up calling the meeting short because he, he wasn't interested in hearing what we had to say. But we did give him a packet of data documents to take back with him, and uh, I, I don't know what he did with them. Nothing came out of it, I don't think. But the point is, my troubles continued. Uh, after tax court, then I, I, I started getting letters from this particular uh, revenue officer in Houston who called me into his office to with, with a summons and said, you know, come and come, well, call me to his office and said, you know, bring me all your banking records, all your receipts, everything, because I'm, I'm going to gather that information and we're going to prepare returns for you uh, because you haven't filed. And so I went to his office. I met him face to face. Had three meetings, as a matter of fact. And uh, by the way, I, I recorded every one of them on my recorder and. Uh, I handed him a 25-page letter each time with, with documentation showing him that I'm not liable for the tax. This is all the reasons why in all the court cases. And by the, by the time we got to the third meeting face-to-face, -face, I handed him the third letter, and he just threw it on the floor. And he said, this is nothing but tax protest or rhetoric. I'm just I'm not even going to read it. So that's, that's where that was. When you attempt to... Even confront them with, with uh, alternate information, they just don't want to hear it. So, yeah. and so the results of that meeting, since he said, well, you, Mr. McNeil, you did not provide the documents that I asked you for. I'm going to refer you upstairs to the attorney's office, and we're going to take you to court and get a summons, and we're going to get those documents from you. So sure enough, a few weeks later, I received two summonses from a federal court in Houston saying, you know, show up on this date. 9 a.m. and tell us either bring the documents or explain to us why you're not required to, to bring them. And so I did a lot of research. Uh, ended, up, ended up sending in a, a, a pleading, uh, actually a response to the court prior to the court date. It was about 77 pages with all sorts of, uh, with 600 pages of exhibits. 
what happened is short, make short, long story short, I never entered the courtroom. Uh, at 8.30 in the morning, the DOJ attorney approached me and said, Mr. McNeil, we've reviewed both the summonses that you that we issued to you, and we've also reviewed what you, what you responded, and we've determined that you've substantially complied with the, uh, with the summonses, so we're dropping, we're dismissing the two summonses. I'm like, and I said, well, hey, They're good. saying that the documents that you submitted yes. were sufficient to substitute for the documents they were requesting. Is that is that the implication of what he said? No, that's not what. Well, that's what she said, but what she meant was, I don't want to confront, I don't want yeah. to discuss this, this evidence in front of a judge. Yeah, and not only in front of a judge, on the record. On the record, exactly. So yeah. they, so I walked. By, by 9 o'clock, I, I was gone. I had breakfast at 9 10, you know, so... <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> I guess that would be one of the better breakfasts uh, um, if, you, if you're if you're done with these people. Should yeah. be should be pretty enjoyable breakfast. You know, it was the most amazing thing. I, my sister's an attorney, and, and she's been worried about me all through this ordeal. Bob, I, oh, I don't want you to go to prison. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Oh my God, Bob, don't do this. And she's the first person I called at nine twelve after I was sitting down with my eggs. And I said, she said, what are you doing? Why are you calling me? She said, well, I said, well, I'm through. <laughs> I'm out of combat. I never went to the courtroom. And she just laughed on the other end and said, Bob, I can't believe that. And so, uh, but that's what happened. I understand. But, uh, yeah. So, has your, that point, go ahead. Has your sister changed her opinion about some of your notions? I mean, as a licensed attorney, yeah. She probably thought you were a little bit crazy until the government said, no, maybe not. Maybe maybe you're on target here, and we don't want to talk to you. Did it change her perspective of the law at all? I think it did. Uh, I think she always knew I was on to something, but, you know, like everybody else, you know, you can't fight City Hall or you can't fight the government or whatever the case may be. But when one person stands up to a bully, so to speak, and punches him in the nose, generally backs down. Yeah. So uh, I just decided to punch the bully in the nose. That's all. But uh, <laughs> and I would imagine you were yeah. one of the most. You were one of probably one of the most surprised when the bully did sit down. Of course, yes, I was. Uh, take a take. It's like me taking a shot at Mike Tyson or something. Um, this is yeah. not likely to end well, but I'll be darned. So, so then my eyes were further opened uh, when I met Michael in 2014, and and then we we. Actually, come together as a team working on these cases now. Uh, since then, and uh, uh, I, I, I sort of go. I'm, I'm the evidence reviewer and evidence organizer and evidence preparer. And well, you're Captain team. Comma, isn't that right? Captain Comma, that's right. I saw it in one of the emails you were exchanging, right. and that means you're the guy that pays attention to all the details to make sure the things we've the eyes have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. All right, Michael is perhaps primarily advancing theory and and uh, maybe research, and you're sitting back and saying, uh-uh, comment here, we need a, a semicolon over here. Um, yeah. You're in charge. When Michael, when you first talked to Michael, yeah. and you first saw the evidence and the theory that he'd put together, what was your first reaction? Did you think he was... Uh, <laughs> I think this guy's got to be crazy, or did you see instantly, my God, this is powerful? Uh, what was your first reaction? Well, I knew right away he was on to something. You know, just yeah. as from, the, from the concept of the, uh, the context of a forensic auditory, you know, I knew he was on to something. 
I presented my evidence to you, but you're not going to be convinced until you go back into your IMF and identify these transaction codes in your records. Because when you do that, you will then see that this is a systemic problem that applies not only to me, but to you and everybody else who has not filed tax returns in quite a while or, or ever. So I did that, and I went back and I, filed, I found the exact same transaction codes in my IMF as he did. And the same DLN, you know, that, that's out to the right side of that. And from there, we developed the procedures to go through and, and get, uh, you know, get the documentation to support that, file the, the FOIAs and, and obtain other documents. And now we've come up with a, 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 a very powerful evidence package that the, uh, the IRS and the DOJ are having a really hard time uh, countering. They just don't know what to do with it, I think. So. Well, you're not the only ones that are involved in this exactly. If I understand correctly, there are four other people, six total at this time, and one more who is preparing to also go into the courts using some version of the same argument you've been talking about tonight. Um, so you've got six of you right now, if I understand correctly, that are in the court system and perhaps headed for the Supreme Court. How do you imagine, do you believe that's going to strengthen your case to see this coming at them in essentially in waves? Yeah, I'll let Michael address that. He's, he has a, a point of view on that that I agree with, and he's much more eloquent than I am in describing that. So, Michael, why don't you explain that? Well, the number of cases, there's four of us that are actually filing or have filed civil cases in the yep. District of Columbia. There's another one in California. Dr. Bill Bailey, who's using the same arguments, uh, not successfully, I'd have to point out, because uh, the attorneys are running it. But at any rate, there are five of us who are using these he's arguments. Bailey right. has got a criminal case. Is that true? He's in, a, in the middle of it. He's just been convicted a few weeks back on eight counts of tax evasion, and the judge would not look at the underlying individual master file record. And you can kind of picture why. Because if she is able to see that IRS committed crimes in that individual master file, that's called exculpatory, and it's also called dispositive. So it's exculpatory, dispositive, case-ending evidence if we let in IRS evidence that shows they falsified their record. And when you, say, expo uh, ex when you say exculpatory, you're yeah. saying that this is evidence that proves you're not guilty. Well, it proves that the uh, the income tax was not imposed. Let me say it again. We talked about this in the first part of the hour. The income Congress don't have, doesn't have any authority to authorize the commission of crimes to enforce the law. Mm -hmm. That's a given. The IRS has now been revealed, or the pants pulled down, that they are falsifying, literally committing crimes to enforce the income tax. They. The inference of those two facts together are that Congress never imposed a tax, since Congress can't tell the guys to to criminally falsify their records to enforce it on non-filers. So when I say exculpatory dispositive evidence, if you look into that individual master file of Dr. Bill Bailey and see the same thing that Bob and I have seen over and over, then what that tells you is they've committed crimes, and that means no imposition. There was no duty that he could evade. 
evasion case has a presupposition that there's a duty that he was evading. Because Congress never imposed the tax, he had no duty to evade. That's why the judge doesn't want to hear about it. Well, I understand. I mean, you're off in a strange place. Does anyone behind, besides Dr. Bailey, is anyone else facing criminal liability in this matter, or are all of these cases civil? No, all of these cases are civil cases. Each of us that has filed a civil case, we're not under that kind of stress quite yet, although it could happen at any point. They could indict you, and then you're down the merry path of having to defend yourself, and they're going to do everything they can to prevent the dispositive, exculpatory, individual master file record from coming into the court case. Uh, let me ask one more question. We we already went through exculpatory, and in my understanding, that would be evidence that well, evidence of your innocence rather than your guilt. Right. All right. Right. What does dispositive mean? Well, it means case closed. It disposes of the case. So exculpatory means you're not guilty. Dispositive is the same basically thing. It kills the case. They dispositive do disposes of the case. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I thought this positive was uh, something like saying it was a negative, it was a fancy way of saying negative or something like that, but you're saying, no, it disposes of the case. That's interesting. They commit crimes. The government, Mm -hmm. and I I think it would be worth the time for us to just review the, the, there are some court cases that are really, really stunning on this subject, right? One of them was one written in 1923, and in essence, the judge is named Brandeis, and he is so eloquent. He's talking specifically to the fact that the government cannot commit crimes to enforce the law. So I could read a little bit of that to you, but I guess I'll just tell you from my memory. The government is um, the omnipresent teacher, for better or for worse, it teaches by its example. If the government commits crimes, it teaches the people to disrespect the law. In fact, it uh, encourages every man to take the law into his own hands. It will, if the government is allowed to commit crimes, it's going to produce such a disrespect for law, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing it, that it will end the rule of law. So, and we've already seen a lot of that. I mean, anyone who studies the legal system is likely to agree that that's not that's not a fant- that's not a fantasy that's something that's happening to some extent we can debate how much but there's a lot of crime in the system or at least it's perceived that way by a lot of people Sure. So here we have a judge saying back in 
looking for discovery for every jot and tittle. Well, what are they afraid of? Yeah, I know. And what if there are some jot and tittles? There's some jots and tittles that actually help defend the alleged, uh, you know, the the alleged defendant. What's wrong if those are found? Isn't the government's obligation to do justice rather than just guarantee a conviction? Well, that's what I told you. Remember I said that it's dispositive exculpatory evidence? If you know how to read an individual master file and compare it to what the government actually sends in the mail, you realize there's a a big disconnect and that their records are being falsified internally to give them a power that Congress never did. Congress never gave them a power to compel non-filers. They they just have to stand back because, of course, that very strong Fifth Amendment. But they all kind of poo-poo that. Lawyers are able, by the way, just so you know, they're able to say any lie in court and get away with it. They have been exempted from the law against, you know, saying something in court that would be false. Well, they're entitled to just speak in the court and say whatever they want as a matter of defense, and they don't speak under oath. Oh, no, and here's the, the upshot, how that actually plays out to your listeners, is there is not one person in the, in, in the IRS that will ever say they actually executed a substitute income tax return, but every government lawyer involved in cases enforcing this little document called a valid return SFR package, the government lawyers will all say that's a substitute income tax return. But the person who does it will never swear to it and certainly will never claim it's a substitute income tax return. Well, let me ask you this. How do we get a substitute income tax return introduced into evidence without someone sitting on the witness chair under oath and identifying the document and saying, yes, sir, I am the one who signed this document. I'm the one who prepared it. How do they do it, Alice? I told you they have what's called live witnesses proffering certificates. They're called self-authenticating certificates because they came up with this rule of evidence, the lawyers did, that says government records are voluminous, so it would be very difficult to bring all of their records in, so we'll just give you this one two-page certification to this witness who will come in and say, I'm an expert, and I looked at the underlying records, and sure enough, there's a substitute return. According to the certificate, a substitute for return was done on so-and-so date, and away they go. The person what who is the difference between... Everything. Hey, Al, let me finish this thought. The person who actually does that, that 13496 form and the substitute for return package, they are completely removed from ever being known. There is no reference to them. In the internal revenue records, in the IMF, no reference is made to the date that they do their, their quote-unquote package. Their name is never mentioned. That's how they do it, is they make their this is, Then you're being charged by an anonymous witness. That's exactly right. And they get away with it because of the complexity of government records. We'll use self-authenticating certifications through that live witness who knows nothing. Sounds quite well, like sounds similar to the uh, robo signing uh, mortgage deal. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit like that, except they don't even get a robo. <laughs> All right. The IRS just sends in the form, and I don't know. We got the robo signing in invisible ink. Maybe that's what's happening, but we don't really have a signature. What is the difference between one of these certificates and an affidavit? Uh, the person's uh, 
the certificate signer doesn't yep. swear under penalty of perjury. She just mm-hmm. says, I will, I hereby certify that this is a true and correct copy of documents on file in the government records concerning Mr. Ellis or whoever. Well, if you've got your FOIA that says yeah. where you've asked for this under the document locator number and they have admitted that there's no such document, right. then does that open a door where you can create an affidavit and set up oh, and yeah. say, I swear that I'm such and such, oh, and, yeah. such and such? And they said that nothing. Now, I know it's a kind of hearsay. You're not the guy oh, in the government. It's just saying you did return, you did receive the letter that says we don't have one. Mm-hmm. So that's what you would you would show them is that the contrast. You're exactly right, Al. You would contrast between their individual master file record that shows when done on a certain date versus their certificate that says that a substitute for return was done on another date, and that's where you would hold them accountable. Is to say, the live witness here doesn't know who the person is that did it, but we actually have the name of the person that created this, and we want to subpoena her. Bring in the person. We want to know what's her authority. <laughs> we want to put her on the stand. And what is her authority to do a substitute income tax return? Oh, they don't want to hear this. Now, I, I've got a question about the, the whole requesting thing. Couldn't you also do an affidavit swearing that uh, I have never requested uh, a substitute, you know, uh, form from these guys? Oh, okay. Why are you going... Is your case going into an administrative court or into a judicial court, and do you know? Yes, it's a judicial court. The judicial courts of the United States are judicial Article Three courts. So we've gone, not just my case, the one that preceded all these other guys, one that was, is now coming up to the Supreme Court. That's one. But there's four other cases at the district court level in the District of Columbia. And, guys, we selected the District of Columbia because, of course, it's the seat of the government agencies. But really primarily because in Texas, the federal district courts are so corrupt in the Northern District of Texas that they literally run multiple competing versions of the docket in individual cases so that they can conceal judicial orders. Now, for folks who didn't understand what Michael just said, I believe when you researched this, this is a discovery that you made at least three, maybe four years ago? With a friend of mine who was being attempting to get a conviction reversed, he discovered that the government has not only the court system, not only has the version that's open to the public of the DACA where they file judicial orders, but there's a second and a third version that they run that contradicts the public-facing docket version. It's called internal use only. So we... When we discovered that and we saw that they were literally concealing judicial orders in cases from litigants, we knew that the district of the Northern District of Texas is corrupt beyond words. So we avoided internal, that. Internal to what? Hmm? Internal they pay for internal use only. Internal, internal to I, what? Well, it's internal use, as I would assume, it's internal for their staff use only. Yeah, I get that, but I would make you a bet that if someone were to do a real investigation of internal to what, the result might be a little more surprising than just internal to the staff. Um, but just a bet. We, 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 maybe yes, maybe not, but I'm certainly suspicious of it. Uh, you are trying, among other things, to make your information 
and make this theory and understanding available to others who might also be interested in, in suing the Internal Revenue Service. You're not trying to create a, a conspiracy or an organization, but you are making this available to other people who may be interested in filing into Absolutely. the courts and trying to emulate some of your strategy, and maybe they use some of your strategy, maybe they wouldn't. But are you having much success with that? Do you expect well, more people yeah. to jump on board and say, yeah, sign me? Well, not sign me up, but I want to emulate what you're doing. Well, they can do that because I'm not uh, practicing law without a license. I just show them what I've done. Yep. And they help them, just as I did with Bob, just go look here, 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 here in your records and go find the individual master file. Go look at it, go see what you got, and then away we go. I can show them exactly, I have the right, First Amendment right, to tell anybody what I've seen, A, what I've experienced, B, and what I'm doing. So I do that with anybody that wants to, and we're really looking for a couple of things right now besides People that want to maybe uh, look into their IMF and try to get that going. We're looking also for maybe a person that has some funding capability that might want to fund this a, as a class action and maybe even an attorney. So if anybody out there in the Ethernet <clears throat> knows either some funding capabilities for a class action or an attorney or both, we'd sure like to hear about it. Have you thought about trying crowdfunding? Well, Bob can address that. Bob, are you there? I'm here, yes. Uh, what about crowdfunding, Bob? Is that a way to generate? Can you put an ad up there and say we've got a lawsuit coming up against, matter of fact, we've got four or five of these lawsuits that are headed for the Supreme Court to test this argument, and we could certainly use some funding, because I understand how much time does this really take? I mean, in terms of years, you're not talking about devoting a few weeks to this thing. Right. The total investment right. is years That's to come right. to a point where you're capable of litigating. So you can see that some kind of funding would be certainly helpful. Uh, is crowdfunding right. likely to be a source that could be could be used? It, it could be, Al, in, in my opinion. Uh, my only concern about this, and I have read of instances of this, some crowdsourcing uh, websites, um, filter out and actually delete websites that they don't agree with or whatever the case may be, it might be controversial. So we would, uh, while I think it's a, it's, pretty, it's a valid way to raise money, I mean, anybody can donate 25 bucks or more, you know, and all of a sudden you've got enough to, to pay a lawyer to, to take this uh, to a class action, but uh, there's a risk involved in that, is, is all I can say. Uh, it would be better, I think, to have a private funder or several uh, so that we wouldn't run into those problems. We would never want to be halfway through a case or halfway through this and all of a sudden our crowdsourcing website go down. That's an example. So uh, uh, it is a source, but I, I would consider it a secondary source to someone who might, or, or more people who might want to contribute. But, uh, we'll but give that, folks that contact information where they can reach Bob or Michael, you can do it right now. And people, if you get a pen, pencil, paper, whatever you need, if you're interested in this, let's give them some contact information now, and we'll do and we'll do the same thing again in about 10, 12 minutes when we get close to the end of the program. What kind of contact information? Phones, internet, websites, 
go ahead and spell it out right now, and we'll do it again in about 10 minutes for people who don't have a pen or paper just yet. Well, this, this is uh, let me speak. Let me speak to that, to that if I could. Uh, people can. I, I'm asking people to contact me through my website uh, in the in the comments section of my website, and that website is R A M. Those are my initials, Robert Allen McNeil. So R A M dash V dash I R S dot com. So dash Ram- V as in victory. As in victory, yes. Ram-B-IRS.com is where you can go. You can see all all my 300-and-something documents. You can contact me there on the contact page. Let me know you're interested. You know, hey, I'm interested in joining your suit. And uh, leave me your phone number. I'll call you back, and we'll talk. Uh, I'll give people also my, my email address if you'd like to contact me by email. Go ahead. That's my, that's my Gmail address, and that is Bob. McNeil, M-C-N-E-I-L, 49, at gmail.com. Let me repeat that. Bob.McNeil49 at gmail.com. Is this the primary source for, if people go here, they can get you, they can get Michael, or does Mike, Michael, are you going to provide an alternative contact information? I think it's really good that we go through one single source, and I think because good. Bob has already got that up and got so much information, let's try to use that. But we, he and I, talk to anybody that's looking to to work with us, and so we'll be happy to both respond. Yeah. He will make sure that that happens. How long? How long do you suppose it will be? You're getting close to filing at the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. There's always a possibility the Supreme Court just refuses to hear the case. Oh, it's 99% sure. Let me back up, though. I think you'd like this because the this will help your audience briefly understand the power of what we have. <clears throat> Remember that our allegation is that IRS never does substitute for returns that falsifies their records to show that they do. That's a crime. When I went to the, in 2013, filed a case, the judge that uh, looked at this was named Amy Berman Jackson. She took a look at the case and said, well, it looks to me like you're trying to stop a substitute for return from being done, which is an assessment activity, which is barred by the Anti-Injunction Act. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. She flushed the case. Listen to that again. I am suing them to stop them from falsifying their records to show they do substitutes for return when they never do. She misunderstood, misapprehended, and said that I was attempting to stop a substitute for return when, in fact, I'm complaining that they never do one, and I'd like to see them do one. Do you see the difference, Al? Oh, I absolutely do. In fact, you're not trying to stop it. You're trying to make them produce one. You're saying, I'm the one here who's saying, do it. I I want to see you do one. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying, do one. Show me. So now you get the idea how how she had to respond to get rid of the case when yep. she literally had to fabricate an allegation and attribute it to me and then dismiss based on the allegation she created. I, now, I understand. Say, I've heard of reports like that before. Um, you right. complain that somebody stole a box of oranges and the court replies there's no evidence of any missing apples. And therefore, your case is dismissed. Uh, It's something they do, and they can do, I think, in equity and or in an administrative tribunal rather than a a true court of law. 
No, but here's another one, though, that kind of goes along with what you're saying. One of my friends was uh, in tax court. He got into tax court. One of the guys that's filed this, he got into tax court recently, and <clears throat> he wanted to get out. So he filed a motion to, to dismiss the case. Probably should have been a, uh, a notice of this. But at any rate, the judge in the case correctly identified some of what he was saying, right? In fact, in the order, the judge says, well, uh, this guy has filed a motion to dismiss, asserting that the court lacks jurisdiction to render judgment because IRS has repeatedly falsified its underlying records with respect to each tax year and so forth. So he identified, but then the judge continues and says, the court is of limited jurisdiction and has no authority to consider prosecutions of IRS employees for alleged criminal offenses or claims for monetary compensation for alleged wrongs by IRS employees. Do you have any idea how much time elapsed from when he first said, I can see there's a crime here, and uh, he came up and he said, however, we don't have jurisdiction to deal with it? Was this well, something where he got a, had time to get a phone call from somebody on the outside and said, better watch your step, or did this follow, make the one statement and the other one followed almost immediately? Well, here's a, here's a followed kind of sequential, but the problem is that judges don't know this, but they only have uh, their immunity from suit does not cover the commission of crimes against rights in a collusion or conspiracy. They don't know that. Most of these guys think that they're absolutely ironclad. This guy made up absolutely out of the thin blue sky that my friend was attempting to consider prosecuting an IRS employee in tax court or that he was looking for monetary compensation in tax court. He, this, this is the chief judge now of the United States Tax Court in Washington, D.C. So I'm telling you this, guys, because the point is they are so outlandish in what they have to do to create allegations, attribute them to you so that they can get rid of your case based on their fabricated allegations. That's how yeah. good our it allegations keeps the racket are. running. In the yeah. unlikely event that anyone has brains enough to spot the racket and really take it to upper courts, upper levels of courts, yeah. um, they still have, well, we're going to throw you in the trash anyway because we got to keep the racket running. Well, but here's what we said to that guy. In response to that guy, we said, judges have no immunity from suit for fabricating facts in support of a collusion against rights. And showed them the court cases that said that. So... Now, we would respectfully request you just dismiss the case without doing what they did to Bob, uh, creating a judgment against my other friend. And we don't know yet. The guy was supposed to, to rule on this deal a week or so ago, right? So we're going to see what happens, but I'm telling you, if he does go ahead and do that, he's opening himself up for participant as a defendant in a court case. I understand. Including to deprive rights by committing a crime falsifying a federal court record, right? Is there any hope that you will get in front of a jury before this is an actual jury and not just have the case decided by one or more judges? Or is it, would you even want the case in front of a jury? you got no, a communication not. barrier there. Do you want to get to a jury, or do you want to just deal with judges? There's no need to, because um, it's at what's called a very preliminary stage. When you first file a lawsuit, they have to get rid of it at this stage. Now, Bob's in a very interesting spot. The reason why they have to get rid of it is because if you ever get to an evidentiary hearing, the IRS goose is cooked. So here's what happens.
that. And in Bob's case, the IRS filed a motion to dismiss. And they stated, actually, straight up in a, in a document they filed, that Mr. McNeil is wrong because he claims they don't do, IRS doesn't do a substitute for return. By the way, this is the DOJ writer. Yep. The DOJ writer, this attorney, says, McNeil is wrong because he claims that the IRS doesn't do a substitute for return. But McNeil attached one, a substitute for return package, to his complaint. Well, Bob responded and said, oh, no, they didn't. Yeah. You don't know. What they did was a looks-like substitute for return package when, in fact, they never even called it that. And internally, here's how they treated it. The IRS records give it away, but they don't treat that document as a substitute for return, but as an addition to tax to a module that already has a return. And your so, primary problem right now is to introduce this evidence, and yeah. once you get it into the record, in theory, you should be able to win this case, but they are giving you a hard time to introduce your evidence. Is that true well, or false? Bob, in Bob's case, they're now the IRS, excuse me, the DOJ, has actually fomented a hearing that's required now to resolve this issue, whether it's called an evidentiary hearing, to resolve whether, in fact, according to Bob, the IRS does not do a substitute return, or is the DOJ right, who doesn't have any idea what the underlying IRS procedures are, is the DOJ right claiming that the IRS does do a substitute for return? We have to have a, a hearing to determine that and listen out. If there is an evidentiary hearing to resolve that major conflict, jig is up. Is the evidentiary, if they say you have to have a hearing, have they specified whether it's evidentiary or administrative? It's a, it's a District of Columbia, excuse me, the District Court in the District of Columbia is a Article Three court, but it's not an administrative court. Okay, so like you're a, sure that this is not an administrative hearing? Yes, it's a, it's a regular full District Court, Article Three. Um, I've got I've got something that was back earlier when you you guys had mentioned that you know if they did this the right way, they would do an examination. Is that correct? No, they don't have any authority to do anything in income tax. There's no right way to do it. That's the problem. It's all voluntary. Well, what you're implying is you don't even have to keep a set of books unless you do so voluntarily. That's right. Now, that's not what you've said, but that's the implication here. They that's say produce a book. I don't need your book. Voluntary. I don't volunteer. Actually, I, I had a federal judge at a district court here in Oregon tell me that uh, in a, uh, uh, what do you call that, discovery hearing, because I wasn't cooperating, and, uh, you know, we had to go through this hearing, and they wanted, like, 10 years of tax returns, and I said, I don't keep tax returns. I don't keep records for you, and uh, I don't have any. And the judge right. told me... Well, can't produce what you don't have. Next. <laughs> good, right, good. You know, but, I, I mean, so, why am I, I have this letter here. I'm writing to inform you that your case, for the examination of your 2005 to 2009 tax years, have been transferred to local internal revenue office, blah, 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 and then this letter is just meant to provide you with contact information if you want to talk to us about it. And, and that's it. And they... It's it's kind of odd because I've gotten several other letters from the IRS. It sounds like a trap. Yeah, it does sound like a trap. Yeah. But I've never gotten yeah. a letter like this before. Well, stick around. No telling how many they can produce. We're going to be out of time here shortly. Let's give the contact information one more time. 
Bob? Okay, yeah, this is Bob again. Uh, my website is ram-v-irs.com, and my uh, email address is bob.mcneil49 at gmail.com. And that McNeil is M-C-N-E-I-L-49. That's correct, yeah. Bob.McNeil. Go ahead. Anything else? Yeah, yeah Bob, uh, let, me, let me read it all through. Bob.McNeil49 at gmail.com, just to be clear. Okay. All right, and folks, I hope you got that. If any of you are contending with the Internal Revenue Service, you may want to contact Bob and Michael because it may be that they've got a strategy that you will want to employ. You will want to consider, at least. We're out of time. I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank Frank for co-hosting as usual. I want to thank Michael Ellis and Bob McNeil for being guests on the program. Um, really as hard as this is to understand for anybody, you guys have done a great job of trying to explain this. This is about, you're getting this down to where it's about as clear. I mean, even I can understand it, or at least I think I can. And that means you guys are good communicators. So thank you for being on the program, Bob. Thank you, Michael, as always. And we look forward to hearing how these work, how these cases work out and talking to you again on this program. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank all of you for listening. Um, we'll be back next Tuesday. In the meantime, with the good Lord bless you, me, Michael, Frank, Bob, and Melody, our sponsor. Talk to you, folks. Good night. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills
distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017, almost nine minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, if all that's true where you're at, we're live, 800-932-1980. Those of you who are listening to the show prior to this, that was a replay from March. I thought that uh, that was a good one to play. Al couldn't be on tonight, but that is a, I consider a classic with good information, stuff you're not hearing uh, all over the place, and it could actually help you. 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. Uh, but if you don't want to call in, but you'd still like to kind of participate, you can do so by going to our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And uh, yeah, let's see, avrn1.com and avrn.tv. We'll all get you to the website. And once you're there, you'll see, uh, well, pretty much everything you need to know about the network is there. And we have a chat room. So you can go in there and uh, participate or just socialize. It's up to you. Chat room is there for you, for your enjoyment or for your, uh, you know, to get your voice uh, or your information out there to people. Whatever. Whatever you want to use it for, it's there for, well, within reason, of course. Okay, somebody's asking me, are you or have you used the info yet? That means from the uh, show prior. Well, I'm using it right now, to tell you the truth. And I will keep you appraised as the, you know, as there is something to appraise you of. The, right now, there isn't anything, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there will be. And when there is, I'll let you know. Anywho, see, that's what you can do. You can ask questions. I will answer them on the air. I can't type to you while I'm uh, talking because, well, that's just something that doesn't work for me. Trying to type and talk, it just is not happening. Unless, of course, I'm trying to type what I'm talking, which doesn't work either because I can talk a lot faster than I can type. So I just try to stay away from the whole talking, typing thing because it doesn't work for me. And if you're trying to listen, it won't work for you either. All right, so let's get to some stuff, and maybe things, too. All right, I'll start with a softball. Here's here's something that, uh, really? Well, golly, you didn't know that. Well, it's news, though, and uh, it's from the Telegraph, and in their science section, listen, diet drinks are not healthy. Oh. <gasps> And could trigger weight gain, say researchers. Really? Well, of course. I mean, how many times have you heard that, folks? I mean, come on. Not healthy, really? Since when is drinking wood alcohol not healthy? Oh, that is what happens to aspartame if it gets above, like, 70 degrees. Yeah. Yummy. Mmm. Not to mention, it kills your pancreas. Oh, I wonder why everybody's got diabetes. Oh, it has nothing to do with that. Really, you know what? How how dumb is everybody, folks? I mean, really? I mean, honestly, I, I have to ask this because 
Okay, so everybody's like, well, you know, all right, back in the 1960s, there was not a diabetes epidemic. Well, now there is. What's changed? Well, a lot of things have changed, but what, what specifically has changed to do with that? Well, artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, right? Oh, well, gee, but that that can't be it because, well, they wouldn't put that in our food if it was bad for us. Why, we have the FDA to protect us, don't we? Yeah, just like we have the EPA to protect us from radiation and how they protect us from radiation is, uh, well, if there's a radiation problem, uh, some sort of accident like, say, oh, I don't know, Fukushima raining down a thousand times beyond what safe levels are, well, then we'll just raise the limits of safe levels 10,000 times, and there you're way below safe. Except the EPA's safe levels will kill you in five years. But, uh, hey, uh, you know what? In five years, you won't remember what we did five years ago. So, hey, yeah, the FDA is the same group of criminals protecting you from the food. Yeah. So, listen, you know, it, it, listen, if the EPA will say, well, gee, we've got these radiation levels that we say, okay, here's the safe levels. And anything above that's not safe. And now we have Fukushima raining radiation down on the whole United States. And, and folks, don't, don't think it's just the West Coast because it's not. It's the whole United States. Look, radiation doesn't dissipate. Oh, well, you know, the further from Japan it gets, the weaker it is. Uh, it don't work like that, okay? I mean, unless it takes, I don't know, half a million years to get from Japan to the East Coast, does it? I don't think so. But if it did take half a million years, then yes, it would be weaker. But unless you're looking at that kind of time frame, then no, it does not get weaker. So you're getting the same stuff. It does take a little longer, but hey, guess what? Fukushima happened years and years ago. Oh yeah, you're getting it. Everybody in the United States is getting it. Now, the West Coast, the water... I'm sure is more radioactive than, say, on the East Coast. Now, the fish over there, well, they, of course, they've been poisoned by Corexit and, uh, you know, crude oil from the Gulf of Mexico. So don't worry about that. You're getting your share of poison. Don't feel ripped off over on the East Coast. You're, you're getting yours. It's just a little different. So seeing as how the EPA has figured out now that, oh, well, golly, uh, you know, um, gee, the rain is a thousand times higher than safe levels we have. So, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll raise the safe levels 10,000 times, and that way it'll be well within the limits. That's how they protect you. That's the same way the FDA protects you, folks. I'm not making this up, all right? This is not fake news. This is reality. This is exactly what they do. They have limits, and then, uh, you know, companies go, well, that's no fair. That's no good. We don't like that. We want to poison these people because it's really cheap to do so. Oh, okay, so they raise the limits, just like they do for the uh, pharmaceutical companies, huh? right? Oh, hey, your blood pressure is, uh, you know, whatever it is, and it's, uh, well, it's good. Okay, so you go to your doctor the next month, and he goes, hey, your blood pressure is a little high. 
Well, yeah, but it's exactly the same as it was last month when you told me it was good. Well, things have changed. We lowered what your blood pressure ought to be, and uh, you're too high now. So now you need all these pharmaceutical drugs. Why would they do something like that? Because after all these years, they figured out, oh, gosh, that's way too high. No. They figured out, hey, we want to make more sales. So you need to lower it so everybody, more people have high blood pressure, high, uh, you know, high this, high that, you know, lower the levels so we can sell more dope. And that's exactly what the government did. This is the situation you're dealing with, folks. So if you listen to these people, you're putting yourself in danger. But on with this, sugar-free and diet drinks are not helpful for weight loss and could even cause people to pile on the pounds, researchers at Imperial College have claimed. A review of dozens of studies dating back 30 years found that there is no solid evidence that sugar-free alternatives prevent weight gain type 2 diabetes, or help maintain a healthy body mass index. Although artificially sweetened beverages contain fewer calories than sugary versions, researchers say they still trigger sweet receptors in the brain, which may make people crave food. Wow, would you be surprised to find out that, hmm... Food producers and fast food joints are using artificial sweeteners because it gets you addicted. You see, that's what cravings are. It's an addiction. So they're using addictive chemicals that are also sweet in the food to make you eat more, which means you buy more which means you pay more, which means they make more. Get it? Are you seeing a pattern here anywhere? Huh? Let's see. There's the EPA. There's the FDA. There's the, are, are we seeing a pattern? What does it always come down to? Mo money. That's what it always comes down to. Some company somewhere who's got big, deep pockets and willing to shovel out the money to the stinking dirtbag politicians in Washington, D.C., who appoint these scumbags who work for the very industries that are regulated by these agencies, these protective agencies in the federal government, and they get in there and they make decisions to maximize profits for the company they still work for. They're just farmed out to the federal government to go in there and change rules to make them money. Then they go back working for the corporation they work for. The same thing happens in the Federal Reserve, and the same thing happens in the CIA. They all go back to the banks they used to work for. Of course, in the CIA, they work at the Federal Reserve, and then they go into the Fe they go into the CIA. But before you get in the Federal Reserve, you had to be a major banker, like for Goldman Sachs or somebody else. Hey, why don't you ask Eric Holder about it? Yeah, he's back in his corner office. Okay. So, a common perception, which may be influenced by industry marketing, which means industry propaganda, 
oh, yes, let's call it marketing. That's much better than propaganda because everybody knows mm, propaganda has a negative connotation to it. But marketing is just, well, we're just bringing our product to market and telling you about it. No, you're lying to me in order to sell more crap. Oh, wait, there's that common thread again. Sell, sell, sell. Is that because diet drinks have no sugar, they must be healthier and aid in weight loss when use, used as a substitute for full sugar versions, said Professor Christopher Millet, senior investigator from Imperial's School of Public Health. However, we found no solid evidence to support this. Far from helping to solve the global obesity crisis, artificial sweetened beverages may be contributing to the problem and should not be promoted as part of a healthy diet. Huh. The authors claim that previous studies which found diet drinks were helpful should be discounted because they were funded by the drinks industry. However, the British Soft Drinks Association said it was wrong to target sugar-free drinks because they help people maintain a low-calorie diet. Oh, what a bunch of BS. Gavin Partington, BSDA Director General, said, At a time when we are trying to encourage people to reduce their overall calorie intake, it is extremely unhelpful that products which contain no sugar, let alone calories, are demonized without evidence. Well, there is lots of evidence, folks. There's evidence up and down. This guy here, Gavin Partington, is a shill, okay? He's nothing but an industry shill. And why exactly are we trying to reduce overall calorie intake? I mean, isn't that supposed to be because we, we want to be less obese? Right? I mean, isn't that the whole point of less calories? Because we're not burning enough calories. We're storing them as fat and becoming obese. So we want to reduce our calories, right? Well, if that's the case, well, fine. So the artificial sugar things have less calories. However, they also have the addictive factor that makes you eat more. Oh boy, so I drink a soda with less calories than, say, a sugar soda, but now I eat two times as much food on my plate. How is that reducing calories? Well, it's not, but you know what it is? It's making a lot of people a lot more money. Hey, we've got a caller on the line. Go ahead, caller. Frank, um, this is Dean from New York City, and we're talking about $400 million. No, we're not. I'm talking about hey, hey, I'm talking about artificial sweeteners. Stay with the program here. Okay, I just wanted to give you the heads up. You know the, Man, uh, the Manhattan franchise contract? Well, for the TV? For video cables? Okay. Time Warner? Yeah. Signed to negotiate it is Robert Schumer, Chuck Schumer's brother. And he was the de facto lawyer assigned to transfer the agreement to Comcast mm. and sell the studio. 
And yes, the artificial sweeteners actually uh, lock into the sugar receptors yeah, and keep them locked in. Yeah, that's what this was saying here. And, uh, you know, the, these things, and you're a uh, nuclear chemist. You probably uh, have been aware that these uh, artificial sweeteners are a chemical nightmare for people's bodies. Right, so this is what saccharin does, and in fact, there's these, okay, you've heard of all these enzymatic uh, uh, cycles within your bodies, like the Krebs cycle and all these other uh, enzyme cycles in your body. So they, they, they work on fructose, sucrose, all these different sugars. So when these artificial sweeteners, the reason why they're artificial is because they're molecules, but the, on one part of them, there's a key that matches sugar. All right? So that that key can fit in the lock that sugar fits into the lock, white sugar, which is really bad. Okay? So you'd really want a complex sugar if you're going to eat it, like honey or something like that. So what happens is the saccharin locks in to the receptor and it doesn't lock out. Now that is supposed to stop your, your sweet craving, but what it does is it shifts the whole cycle of the enzymes downstream to force you to eat more. Yeah. So now you're not satiated, but you're satiated because the lock is jammed now. They've put crazy glue in the locks. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, crazy glue in the locks. That's great. So, okay, let's go back to the thing for a second here. So what does this mean? Because uh, I'm uh, coming up on a break. But what, do, what does this mean that uh, Chuck Schumer's brother, Robert Schumer, was the, the lawyer putting this deal by? What does that mean in the short, in the short version, the uh, Reader's Digest version of this? What, what does that mean exactly? I mean, I mean, obviously. It means that Chuck Schumer, Paul Weiss, the largest law firm that services the National Democratic Committee, probably has negotiated all of Time Warner Cable's public access contracts across the nation and has flipped them systematically, one by one, taking those channels for profit and turning them over to people like Al Gore, Al Jazeera to make big profits after they were set up by the cities for communities. Meaning with, with tax money, right? Exactly. So they basically privatized airwaves once they got to the point where they switched into fiber optics. So, but, so Dean, this is like me saying, okay, well, look at Dean over there. Dean built himself a uh, a studio. He built himself, look at all that cable going in there. Look at all this stuff. He's doing TV shows. He's doing all that. And I get somebody associated with you to basically uh, give me that real cheap. Give me that over to the, to me, and then I tell Dean, hey, beat it, Dean. I uh, I own your place now. Right, except for M&N, the, the studio I work with, is in on it because they're now selling the property to CUNY, John Jay College, which is in on it. All right? They're the Republican counterpart. So what... you people need to know is that all these video cables that are in the ground in Chicago, LA, San Francisco, all the big cities run to all the banks, the schools, 
the police stations, the traffic lights, and so you're talking about a multi-million dollar monopoly. Okay, let me ask you one question before I go to break. Do you believe that this is just for these companies to make money, or do you think it is part of the effort to take away the ability for an alternative media? It is to take down the alternative media and then to attack the middle-class pedestrian or auto driver and create another system of taxing them because these cameras are falsifying that they're running through lights or speeding. Okay. All right. Because I've seen the photos. Okay. Well, hey, maybe, just, maybe on Monday we can talk about that because I, I've uh, I've read quite a bit about uh, basically if you get a uh, if you get a red light ticket and you don't beat it, you're not paying attention because it's it's pretty it, simple. That's right. So I just want to say I pulled the contract tonight and I was floored to see Paul Weiss was the law firm. <laughs> well, of which. Robert Schumer is, and by the way, Chuck Schumer, the senator who sits on the committee that overrides this, said he had no idea his brother was going to get $400 million and, and that his law firm was, in fact, negotiating for Chuck's National Democratic Committee. Well, Chuck's a known liar, so, you know, that's not surprising. But i got to let you go, Dean. I'll see you on Monday. Ciao. All right, well, there you have a little update from Dean Lorne. Uh, more shenanigans going on. Another attack on the alternative media. They really, really hate the alternative media, folks, because, it, you know, this last election has shown that there's influence there. People are listening. People are paying attention. People are putting on their thinking caps at least a little bit, and uh, they're making choices that the New World Order worldwide communist revolution doesn't appreciate so we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a few
Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017, about 840 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. At, oh, five, four, uh, eight, two, no, wrong numbers, 800-932-1980. I wasn't really ready to come back from break just yet. 800-932-1980. You can call in. Or you can go to the uh, website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Anyhow, uh, first band, uh, somebody had guessed uh, Zeppelin. And I hadn't thought about it before, but it did have kind of a Zeppelin sound. But it's a band named Nuts. And... uh, they're from 1974, so, you know, maybe that sound was going around. And, of course, that second song there was The White Stripes, or what's his name? Uh, uh, Jack White. Anyhow, uh, let's see. Let's get back to some stuff. Oh, yes, diet drinks. But we're not done here because... Uh, Professor Susan Jeb, the government's advisor on obesity, said that sugar was a major risk factor for obesity, type 2 diabetes, and tooth decay. And said switching to artificially sweetened drinks was a step in the right direction. Oh, really? Another lying shill for the government. Man, it just goes to show that Just because you're educated doesn't mean you have any morals, okay? For people seeking to manage their weight, tap water is without question the best drink to choose. Really? Tap water? Not purified water. Oh, no, no, no. And by the way, folks, purified water is not filtered water. Okay? Pure. Purified. Pure water is distilled water. Okay? Just so you know. Oh, and by the way, another thing for all the people out there that go, oh, is that true? I heard a guy that showed a chart where it said, oh, see these flat lines here? Well, they're supposed to be curved or whatever, and they're not, and that's uh, because uh, distilled water is not natural. Really? Tell it to God then, would you? Because uh, how do you think you get rain? Did everybody skip 7th grade science class or what? Was I the only one in there? Because I could have sworn there were other kids in the class with me. No, really. 7th grade science class is where we learned about this. It's where we learned about photosynthesis. It's where we learned about distillation. I mean, honestly, didn't anybody else learn this stuff or what? Or is everybody just really, uh, you know, I don't know. It's not even short-term memory loss. It's long-term memory loss. The oceans evaporate, they go into clouds, and then they fall down as water, distilled water, because you notice that, you know, rainwater is not salty. That's where it came from, the ocean, which is salty. It's so sad. It really is. It's so sad that, you know, this is basic our world, the world you live in, okay? And these are the basics, and people don't know. I mean, really, ask a kid, a high school graduate kid, a senior, where's rain come from? The clouds. Okay, where does the clouds get the rainwater from? Uh, yeah, 
Uh, I guarantee you that'll be the answer in ninety percent of them. Well, we're doomed, I tell you. And that is probably the major reason we're doomed, because the generations coming behind us are morons. Okay? For one, they don't get the education, and that isn't their fault. Okay? They go to school, and they figure, well, I'm going to school. They tell me i got to be educated, so here I am, educate me. And they walk out functional idiots, because they have not been educated. Now, a functional idiot is somebody who can go to his job, push the right buttons, get his paycheck, go home, pay his rent, and go through life like that. They don't know anything else, they don't know how to do anything else, and they don't know about anything else. That's what we have going on, folks. And people out there actually think, oh yeah, well, uh, school to work, that's a good idea. No, that's not a good idea. Because that's what you're doing with school to work. School to work should be better named functional idiot training. But anyway, back to our uh, story here. Because I don't, I don't believe Professor Susan Jeb is an idiot. I think she's a liar. Okay. And uh, yeah, okay. Artificially sweetened drinks is a step in the right direction. Well, I, I guess you could say that if you considered diabetes and death the right direction. Well, then, yeah, she's right. And tap water? Really? Man, send this woman to Flint, Michigan and give her a nice big pitcher of tap water. Unbelievable. Oh, anyway, but... um. But for many people who are used to drinking sugary drinks, this will be too hard of a change to make. Too hard of a change. Hmm. Stop drinking crap. Yeah, that's that's tough. Boy, who wants to do that, huh? I got to admit, folks, you know, I uh, when I go out to eat, I have a, you know, whichever one they have, uh, Sprite or Mist or 7-Up, whichever thing they got uh, is is what I have. And, you know, it's got sugar in it, and, uh, well, it's got high-fructose corn syrup in it, which is even worse. But, you know, I have about a, I don't know, I guess they're, I probably have a couple. So I'd say I probably drink about a quart, you know, unless I'm really thirsty or something. Then I, you know, might have three, but, you know, I have about a quart a week, all at one time, too, uh, of of that nasty stuff. But, got to say, it does taste good, but... I used to drink I used to drink big gulps by, you know, the 64 ounce type before they came up with the bucket gulp, which, you know, man, have you ever seen those cups? I I mean they're like a little gallon bucket or something with a handle on it and and <laughs> and you know what? Hey, I'm not fooling myself. If they would have had those when I was drinking, you know, big gulps by the, you know, I go to 7-Eleven four or five times a day get a big gulp. That's a lot of soda. So yeah, I'd have been drinking the big bucket gulp uh, if I if they would have had them back then too. But man, it's really not good for you, folks. Anyway, artificially sweetened drinks are, the, are a step in the right direction to cut calories. Ha! Huh? Professor Tom Sanders, professor emeritus of nutrition and diet uh, dietetics, dietetic diet 
Ethics at King's College in London added, the conclusion that reduced sugar or sugar-free drinks should not be promoted or seen as part of a healthy diet seems unwarranted and likely to add to public confusion. The stupid people don't want to know this. Just tell them it's good. Tell them it's good. Nothing to see here on your way. Dr. Ellison Tedstone, chief nutritionist at Public Health England, said swapping to low or no sugar drinks goes some way to managing calorie intake and weight. How about eating less? Oh, but we don't want to do that because, see, that would mean you'd be buying less. So we'll give you these sugar-free drinks, which have less calories, but, but, create cravings for more food. And Dean gave you a little small rundown on the, uh, you know, the, the chemical reactions that make that happen. So you see, because that little extra sugar you would be having in your drink certainly doesn't amount to another, a whole other plate of food, now does it? Anyway, so you see the, the, the difference here. Independent study says these drinks are bad, it's poison. But government and industry studies say it's great stuff and you should buy more. Okay, the U.S., U.K. paid white helmets. You've heard of them, right? They uh, they got these guys over there. They wear white helmets and uh, the white helmet organizations. Well, they're blocking water to 5 million thirsty Syrians. That's right. That's what they're thinking. They're, we're here to help. We have white helmets, and we're here to help. White means good. Yeah, the blockade of water from Waldi Barkata to 5 million people in Damascus is taking an interesting turn. The U.S. and U.K. finance white helmet organization seems to be directly involved in it. This increases the suspicion that the illegal blockade of water to civilians in Damascus is part of an organized campaign under U.S. command. The campaign, see, Hillary Clinton already said in the U.N. that they will use food as a weapon. Well, I guess that includes water, huh? The campaign is designed to block utilities to government-held areas as revenge for the liberation of East Aleppo. Unbelievable, man. You know, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, when and, and Hillary Clinton, I, I mean, she should go to prison for this because she was not a politician at the time. She was just simply the first lady who is a nobody with no job. And you got to wonder why Michael Obama has like 30 friggin' assistants to help her through a busy, hard day when she doesn't even have a job description, okay? But that's the way it is. Former House Speaker Nazi Pelosi bought stock in initial public offerings, IPOs that earned hefty returns while she had access to insider information. That would have been illegal for an average citizen to trade with. But guess what? Because Nazi Pelosi and her criminal buddies write the laws, guess who's exempt? That's right. Elected officials are exempt. 
Yeah, there's no insider trading rules for them. They're exempt from insider trading. You know what? These people shouldn't even be allowed to trade on the stock market. That is a direct conflict of uh, interest right there. Because I'm telling you, every last one of these corporations, they're by law required to maximize profit and gains for their stockholders. And that doesn't mean unless it hurts somebody, unless it kills somebody, unless it's damaging to the general population. No. No. You must maximize profit and gain. Period. And if you've got to burn down the world to do it, then you do that. Because we want our dividend checks, damn it. Yeah, that's, that's what it is when you've got the stock market going on. And, hey, the elected officials are all exempt. Isn't that nice? That's right. Lawmakers have exempted themselves from the laws that govern every other citizen. Hey, wait a minute. That's a title of nobility. Nazi Pelosi and her husband have participated in at least eight IPOs while having access to information directly relating to the companies involved. One of those came in 2008 from Visa, just as troublesome piece of legislation that would have hurt credit card companies began making its way through the House. Undisturbed by a potential conflict of interest, the Pelosi's purchased 5,000 shares of Visa at the initial price of $44. Two days later, it was trading at 64 The credit card legislation never made it to the floor of the House. Wow. Well, uh, this guy, Croft, confronted Pelosi at a regular press conference after she declined an interview. Madam Leader, I wanted to ask you why you and your husband back in March 2008 accepted and participated in a very large IPO deal from Visa at a time when there was major legislation affecting credit card companies making its way through the House. Pelosi says, but, and you, and and did you consider that to be a conflict of interest? Though why I, I don't know what your point is of your question. Is there some point that you want to make with that? Well, I... I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's all right for a speaker to accept a very preferential, favorable stock deal? Well, we didn't. You participated in the IPO at the time when you were Speaker of the House. You don't think that was a conflict of interest or had the appearance? No, it was not. Of a conflict of interest? It doesn't. It only has appearance. If you decide that you're going to have, elaborate on a false premise, but it, it, it's not true, and that's that. I don't understand what part's not true. Yes, sir, that. That I would act upon an investment. What? God, what a lying scumbag Nazi Pelosi is. You know, and her husband is not an elected official. Why is he exempt? Huh? Why is he exempt? He's not an elected official. Or or is it is that how it works now? When you get elected to an office... All your family and everybody you know and all your friends, they're all elected to and under your wings of exemption. Is that it? Is that how it works? Well, the Obama administration is in overdrive. You'd think they'd be busy packing their bags or something, but they're not. Um, 
they are trying to pack as much crap into his final weeks. Obama just took away the Second Amendment rights from Social Security recipients. Last week, Obama has put the finishing touches on a policy that will deprive all recipients of supplemental security income of the Second Amendment. You know about that, right? I, I mean, this guy is unbelievable. And, and if Donald Trump doesn't repeal these things through executive order, because that's all he has to do, because none of – look, anything that wasn't through Congress – he can get rid of anything Obama did by himself Trump can get rid of by himself Uh, let's see well this is something that I'm going to read on my own actually it's not reading it's a it's a uh, it's a video but I find this interesting documentary identifies a new culprit in the Titanic disaster hmm Let's see here. Oh, what do we got? Oh, hey, you know, the um, the Republicans were going to get rid of the, uh, all this, it's like a special counsel to uh, investigate, well, wrongdoing by congressmen, and they were going to get rid of it until Trump said, what, wait a minute, what are you doing? Yeah, 119 to 72. Uh, they voted this scumbag from Virginia, a Republican, um, you know, he wanted to get rid of it, and he got a hundred and something people to go along with, and they voted for it, and then Trump said, wait a minute, what are you people doing? So there's a, a an office to investigate your crimes, and you want to get rid of them? Well, they changed their mind because they're a bunch of little panty wastes that know, ooh-ooh, we got caught, we got caught, ooh-ooh. Folks, Washington, D.C. is just a pack of criminal scumbags. They have no redemption, okay? There is no good in any of them. They are all a bunch of criminals, and it goes back to the whole thing. And no, there are no exceptions. Because I don't hear any congressman getting on the news saying, all my colleagues are crooks, and here's the evidence. I don't see that. Okay, I never see that. So don't tell me, oh, my congressman's good or that congressman's good. No, they're not. They're the bad cop that sits there in the passenger seat and watches his partner beat the crap out of innocent people and calls himself a good cop because, well, I didn't beat up anybody. No, but you sat there and watched your criminal partner do it and you didn't say anything. That makes you a criminal, too. Yeah. And that's your Congress. That's your Senate. These people are worthless. You know what? I would love to see Washington, D.C. in the joint session of Congress just get nuked. Every last one of them blown off the face of the earth. I would, I would say, yay, good. And I know, hey, something worse could come after that. But you know what? These people need, they need what they've deserved. They, they, they've earned it, man. They have earned it. But that probably isn't going to happen because, you see, Vladimir Putin is an adult, obviously. He has shown that, and he's not going to let Obama push him into nuking Washington, D.C., like, you know, ought to be done. But, hey, we'll just see what happens, and uh, 
you know, pray that Donald Trump, well, pray that he can live long enough to even do what he promised he can do. And then, if he does live long enough, that he actually will do what he promised to do. But, hey, we'll see. But right now we won't see because I got to go and I'll be back again tomorrow. We got good stuff coming up, so stay tuned if you can. And as always, thanks for listening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence and Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, Father of Virginia University, Ambassador, Secretary of State, Vice President, President, and acquirer of the Louisiana Purchase. The introduction. This is the summary of Jefferson's life. Thomas Jefferson is best known today as the author of the Declaration of Independence, third President of the United States, the prime mover in the Louisiana Purchase and the Lewis and Clark Expedition. On his own epitaph, he listed three accomplishments. Two are not what he is known best for the author of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and father of University of Virginia. The third accomplishment was author of the Declaration of Independence. When reflecting upon how Jefferson measured his own life, one sees he would be with the cultural historians who value ideas as having more impact than the details of politics or wars. The latter may be more sensational, but the former more lasting. It is the reach of Jefferson's ideas that is so important to America today, far more so than his career accomplishments. It is a breathtaking exercise to discuss and cover the life of Mr. Jefferson. His father died when he was 14. This transformed his life early as he was sent off to school after inheriting 5,000 acres of rich Virginia land. He graduated from the distinguished William and Mary College, a rare event before 1900, not to speak of before 1800. He distinguished himself with highest honors, visited the royal governor who, like Virginians of the day, was a British subject and was a wine connoisseur. He married once to Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson, had six children, and after her death in 1782, never married again. There has been much modern goings-on about his relationship. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.